kind of wrapping up your career at Medell. How long have you been teaching there? 27 years. Wow. And I just want to thank you again for getting me in teaching there because it was a real treat to teach there because of you. Thank you so much. Mm. Um, we talked... I got some real attitudes about higher education, but we can talk about that. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. <laughs> but, I mean, I tell you, um, some of my best <clears throat> moments teaching or in my professional career were with at Medill with you. Oh, so those thank are you. some of my best moments, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was just really scintillating, and the students were sharp. And, and They are the only reason I have been there that long. Really? Yes. That okay. is the only reason I've been there that long. I make a distinction between when someone asks me, mm-hmm. what do you do for a living? I don't know if you've noticed this. I never say, I'm a professor. I always say, I'm a teacher. Mm. And the reason for that is because I really think there's a distinction between a professor and a teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone presses a little bit more, oh, well, where do you teach? Do you teach high school? Do you teach grade school? It's like, no, I teach at a university. Oh, well, then you're a professor. And then, okay, we can get into that if you want. But uh-huh. I have a real issue with the way <clears throat> higher education is conducted, particularly at research universities mm-hmm. like Northwestern. And the difference between a professor and a teacher mm-hmm. is professors concentrate more on what they're doing outside the classroom. Right, 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 right. Research, yeah, you mentioned this. publishing, bringing in grants, because they're encouraged to right, know, by the course. university. Yeah, for Teachers concentrate on what's being done inside the classroom. Right. And that's what I've always thought of myself as. I mean, my, I was hired at Medill uh-huh. to teach journalism. Right. And as far as I was concerned, as far as I've always been concerned, my job is to help young people get their careers in journalism started. It mm. wasn't about me. Mm-hmm. It was about them. Right. And I'm not being altruistic. It's just, it's just practical. Yeah, I, and I've gotten so much great feedback from the students that I taught with you about your teaching and the kind of impact that you've had. I mean, some of your students have gone on to work at the most prestigious media outlets in I the saw nation, three right? of them on NBC Network News last okay. night. Oh, really? Yeah. And what other outlets have your students been on that come Well, um, there's Laura Bradley, who's with Vanity Fair. Okay. Andrew DeGranprix, who's with the Washington Post. There's okay. several other people there at the Washington Post. Alice Lee, for instance. NBC Network News. Jesse Kirsch, who is actually still a very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Sam Brock, who's with NBC. Julia Ainsley, who's in okay. with NBC. Natasha Alfred, who I'm still in touch with, who's with CNN, Roxana Sabiri with CBS. And Medill students do very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In well, fact, if I have any regrets at all as a journalist, I should have gone to Medill. Well, <laughs> well, I remember helping to teach one of the classes in a series on methods. Um, and that's one of the most important things that journalists can learn about, which is the methodology of doing good journalism in mm-hmm. terms of corroborating your evidence, you know, verifying your sources, etc., and things of that nature. And we don't see a whole lot of that in a lot of outlets because, you know, with social media, everybody can publish their content. You know what I mean? Well, that's kind of where an expression that I'm known for now came from, which is if you can't write, you ain't shit. Because the fact of the matter is, <laughs> totally. there are a lot of people out there who are calling themselves journalists who are not. Yeah, um, exactly. That that <clears throat> term is thrown around way too it's loosely. Too, much too loosely. And yeah. 
to be a journalist, you have to know the laws and the ethics. Exactly. We don't take an examination like a lawyer or mm-hmm. an accountant or a physician. Mm-hmm. The only thing that certifies you as a journalist mm-hmm. is how well you do your job. Right. And that all starts with this thing called veracity. Mm-hmm. Can you be believed? Mm-hmm. Because you're, the information that you're reporting has been vetted. It's mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. Now, today, when people want news on their cell phones within minutes, it's much more difficult to verify information mm-hmm. before it's reported, mm-hmm. which is why you'll often hear, especially in the media, uh, you know, this has been unverified by NBC, but they're reporting it anyway. Actually, they shouldn't. Right, but if right, they right. don't, someone else will and scoop them. Uh-huh. Okay? Right. If you right. go back to, let's say, the assassination of uh, JFK, General mm-hmm. John F. Kennedy, mm-hmm. they didn't actually report that he was dead until he was. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, but today, what you're going to hear is an up-to-minute account until he actually dies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and some outlets might actually be reporting he is dead, or some outlets might be reporting he's been shot, or some outlets might be reporting we're not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so the public gets confused. Well, you know, I just wanted to run this by you because, like, my belief and what I was, you know, I went to. Um, uh, journalism school, the graduate program at Columbia College, which you know I had a really good experience there, mm-hmm. and what they taught, which which I, you know, I, I I feel um, is correct is there is no pure objectivity. We all mm-hmm. bring something as human beings. That is we all bring true. some sort of a natural bias. So if you don't have a paradigm of methodologies to like work against your own biases. Then you're subject to your own human frailties. You know what I mean? Would you I know exactly agree with what that? You mean. Yeah, I would agree with it a thousand percent. Because like I'm gonna bring my own perspective to anything that I look at. Everything's a manipulation if you think about it. In filmmaking, whether you do a documentary or a dramatic film, whatever, and how you pose a question, how you don't. But you have to have some sort of a structure to go by so that your 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 um your perspective isn't in, isn't um running the show on the way you report a story and it's really really important to do that so like when people talk about true objectivity i kind of like giggle to myself cuz like there's really no such thing but you know it's like you know uh you can I, I hate to use this phrase from Fox News, but you can try to be as fair and balanced as you can, <laughs> even though they misuse that terminology, obviously. Grossly. But you can try to be as fair and balanced. And but and you know, I always try to like think about my own biases that I'm bringing to a situation, try not to be run by that. Do you know what I mean? What you're supposed to try to do is to keep your bias out of what you're reporting. Mm-hmm. If you have an opinion. Well, then that's when you write an editorial. And exactly. Right that's what I'm saying. And, like, and, and put it forth as an opinion piece. As an opinion piece. And try not to disguise it as a news piece. A news piece, And exactly. we see that confusion all the time in yeah. terms of opinion pieces seeping in the media landscape. And what we have now, news, uh, which we didn't have before, are media outlets. And I will include MSNBC and CNN in this as well. Sure. That are... Almost all opinion. Well, CNN does do general mm-hmm. reporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, MSNBC will do it as well mm. when something breaks. But, mm-hmm. you know, for instance, I love Rachel Maddow. Okay? Yeah. Not just because I agree with her politically, but because she actually does have an excellent research staff. Mm-hmm. And what she does is a lot of myth busting. Um, Fox News will report something and she will tell you, no, this is not true. This is actually what, what happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
But at the same time, yes, she's opinionated. Oh, um, for sure. And and also, you know, I mean, God, you know, when I ramping up to the election, uh, the last presidential election, um, and the way in which Joy Reid yes. spoke about Bernie Sanders. Yeah. I was more, I mean, my jaw was on the floor. I was mortified. And, you know, what I realized is like, okay, you know, I mean, it's a false equivalency to, you know, between MSNBC and Fox. You know, I get that. That's kind of a ridiculous comparison. But one thing, you wouldn't have an MSNBC or you wouldn't need an MSNBC if you didn't have Fox. If, exactly. So a lot of it is like they're, they're going back and forth to exactly. each other. However, you do realize that even though, you know, there is some journalism done on some outlets, then all of a sudden some influence is seeping in. Democratic exactly. National Committee is saying, you know, do not highlight this guy or that person, and we're going to crown this person. And you realize there's a power structure behind the scenes that if you're not tapped in, seems like, oh, oh you well, don't notice it. Being, but if you are, it's obvious. We're all being controlled by a power structure. Exactly. Um, I mean, I wish it weren't that way. We're supposed to be a democracy. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that we're all being controlled. And our thought process uh, or processes are being controlled by a power structure. Totally. Um, It just depends on what power structure you more or less adhere to um, or um, lean toward. I mean, I'll tell anybody who asks, even if you don't ask, Mm -hmm. I'm a leftist. Okay. Um, Somebody recently described me as a communist. I'm not a communist. Mm -hmm. But what I am is a social democrat. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could say that I do lean towards socialism i'm about as far away from the right as you can get and the thing that's so interesting about it is mm. that people often get more conservative as they get older mm-hmm. i seem to become a little bit more radical well, you know what what's interesting i, I wanted to ask you about that because like as i've as i've gotten older and i hear what you're saying like the 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 general um a way people are get as they get older, they get more set in their ways, and they get more. They come from a place of scarcity as opposed to abundance, and they get mm-hmm. more conservative as a result. Um, and I can see that. I, I haven't done that like you. I've actually like a lot of my ideals that I've grown up with have been confirmed. But I do what I I have noticed is that the way in which we identify and labels stops. A lot of productive conversation. It does, and it really, really, uh, it really um, pains me to see that. So, for instance, like you know, the the general conservative mindset. Even though you know, under Reagan, he wasn't fiscally conservative. Just like to be responsible fiscally, even though they haven't preached what they they haven't done um, practice what they preached, particularly in the Reagan administration on the conservative end. But like. Am I for efficient use of of, of financial resources? Absolutely. Well, like who who wouldn't, who wouldn't be? be? Who would? Who be? exactly? That's what I'm saying. So like, so all I, I I see that there's a lot of ginned up controversy in our media, and people are yelling at each other. And part of what I want to do with the uh, um, incentives series that we'll be doing for this podcast is actually having people. It's fine if you want to have thoughtful disagreements, but let's get our perspective on the table that's not through the paradigm of I'm this and you're that and so that we can't ever agree. Actually, what I found is that if you can get that out of way, get the your, your the labels and the identities out of the way and have people really having thoughtful conversations in a paradigm that's respectful, what I find is that 
oftentimes there's way more common ground than people realize, which is so refreshing, but you don't get a, we don't get a chance to experience that because the incentive structures, and please speak to this if you'd like, um, in the media, actually are people make money the more gymmed out controversy there is. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, you make money through the controversy. I mean, look, why is there so much coverage of someone like Donald Trump? Um, why did he get so much coverage in 2016? Because he get he's clickbait. Okay? Totally. And people tune in to see what did he say today? What did he do today? Okay? And it's all so outrageous. Yeah, it is. And he, I think, to an extent, well, to a very much great extent, has learned how to manipulate that. Oh, the my more God. outrageous I am, you know, the more audience I get. I mean, he's a TV personality. Yeah. And that's pretty much all he is. But, you know, he's a TV personality, so he knows how to do that. And they're playing each other. Um, that town hall in May, he played those networks, man. He played that network. He did. That was one of the most disgusting things I've ever seen. <laughs> in the first place, um, who was the uh, moderator? Caitlin Collins. He's hmm. a good, she's a pretty good journalist. Okay. Um, and I will give her credit for doing some on-the-spot myth-busting. When he hmm. would say something and she would say, that's not true, Mr. Trump. But here's the thing. <clears throat> First of all, it was mostly his supporters, or at least largely, mm -hmm. his supporters in the audience. And mm. I didn't find this out until later, but I did notice that they didn't film the audience often. What oh. they did is they kept the camera on Trump and Caitlin Collins, because mm. if you'd actually turned the camera to the audience, you'd have seen that not everybody was cheering and applauding. Okay? Uh -huh. There were some people there who were looking pained, uh -huh. introspective, okay. disgusted. Right. <clears throat> but they didn't want you to see that. What they wanted was all this cheering and supporting. So basically what it was was an infomercial <laughs> for Donald Trump. He got to lie and bullshit people. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, he every time he did or insulted somebody, the audience cheered, they clapped, they, you know, they, they just went nuts. Uh -huh. So you're seeing this. And... What I'm asking myself is, <clears throat> why are they doing this? Well, they did it because Donald Trump insisted on it, probably. Mm -hmm. He probably told them, if you don't have my people in the audience, you're not going to get me. Mm -hmm. You know, the man is essentially a coward, so he's not going to go and be <laughs> questioned in front of an objective audience that might boo him. Right, right, Or right. people who might ask him some really hard questions that he cannot answer, right. okay, or looks like an idiot when he does answer uh -huh. them. So they got the audience that is going to gin him up and support him. And right. why did they do that? Because they wanted him on the air. And why did they want him on the air? Once again, because it they knew it was going to bring in a large share of the audience, which it did, right. not as large as they thought it would. Because a lot of people just said, eh, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to hear what this guy has to say. Right. The only reason I watched it is because I'm a journalist. Right. And I wanted to see how this was going to go off. Um, but it was just, it was a clown show. Look, <laughs> that's what i mean as you're talking i'm thinking you know there was a certain amount of i always felt a certain amount of responsibility to keep up to date with you know just current affairs etc etc but man after he became president and then especially as when he you know left office i just i just couldn't stomach listening anymore it was just a it, it seemed just a circus and 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 it's i had to i had to protect my spirit to be honest yeah, with you it's, it's still just, a circus i mean you consider that where we are right now this is a man that
peaceful transfer of power. Now, you know, as an African-American, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, the United States is this wonderful country that's always been so fair. There have always been issues. But there are certain things that I could be, if not proud of, at least I could admit were true. Mm -hmm. And one was that tradition of a peaceful transfer of power. Yes. Democrat or Republican, if you lost, you concede it. Yeah, to the next absolutely, person. absolutely. He lost. Yeah, he refused to concede. Totally. It's that simple. It's yeah. like you 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 run a race, you lose it, and you refuse to accept the fact that you lost it. All right. And then beyond that, what he did was he encouraged a bunch of people to storm the Capitol. <laughs> that is nothing less than a traitorous move. I I know. And now he's and he's running for president. It's it's just turns everything like that I I kind of held somewhat dear about this country kind of on its, its head. It's lopsided. <laughs> it's totally. So why is a man who how many indictments has he had now? Five, six. <sighs> who has been we, we now can say is a known sexual predator. Okay, I personally believe as an African American is a racist to his core. All right, and this man is running for president. Yeah, it's it's just even. Well, understand that George. What 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 killed George Bush's presidency was Iraq, okay, mm-hmm. and also his lackadaisical response to Hurricane Katrina. Totally. And I kind of wish we could, you know, I look back at those days and I think, do you remember Steve King, the, um, um, I think he was a congressman from Iowa, uh, the Republican Party got rid of him the moment he made one or two racist comments, and mm. look where we are today. Oh, I know. That's that's what's amazing about. Trump is that he has um, he has altered the landscape in yeah. terms of what can pass through. I mean, any one of his comments leading up to when he actually uh, beat Hillary Clinton um, would have disqualified any other candidate. Yeah, I mean the 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 secret audio that he got on on the bus that yeah. they got on the bus about grabbing women's private parts. Yes. I mean, it's like that would have disqualified yeah. anybody. But he. He created a new paradigm completely. It's like wild to think about. And he's sharp in a specific way and very, you know, not so sharp in a lot of other a ways. Very uh, all the ones that really matter to me, unfortunately. But yeah, he did create a new paradigm in that way, which is like insane. And now it's actually brought to light the. Um, you know the absurdity of our media landscape because yeah. actually they, you know, they seem to feed off someone like him. They do feed, and off they prop him up, and so it's this 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 horrible cycle where the media he feeds the media landscape, yeah. and then they feed him by the giving him all this free airtime. Are feeding? That's exactly it. The media are feeding. They're feeding off of each other. Yeah, and it's really, yeah. really, and who's getting hurt is. Us, the, the country. I mean, it's a horrible paradigm that public, I yeah. I want to I want I want to be a part of breaking that. I yeah. want more independent journalism to flourish in this country, where you know there's actually enriching reporting that's that's not coming through a certain you know set of influence and really talking about issues that we need to dissect and learn more about. You know what I mean? Like climate change, like our justice system, like health care. You know what I'm saying? It's all becoming um, sublimated to this this horrible political landscape that we have right now. Mm. Um, 
And it's continuing. Did I you, mean, did you, know, you did you did you read uh, uh, a little bit? I don't know if you're um, read up on uh, Cornell West recently wrote about political apartheid and the two party system and how it just yeah. doesn't allow for more opinions to come in. Right. And I've always thought about it. And so, like every year, if you go for you know, say um, a Ralph Nader, a third party candidate runs, we're you know. A lot of the things he says seem to be good, but if you do that, if you vote for a third-party candidate, it's taking away from the Democratic candidate. And then if you adhere to some of those ideals, even though you may not like the candidate that much, then all of a sudden it's like, well, do you want the Republican, and is that good or not? Or you know, and then all of a sudden you you re- you realize very quickly that we don't have a whole lot of choice. We have two choices. <laughs> That's it. That's it. It's ridiculous. We have two choices, and. You know what she just said is true. That if you if you vote third party, which people do, all you're doing is removing the opportunity or lessening the opportunity for one particular candidate to win. You know, right. which is why, um, you know, I, I just either we're going to seriously diversify mm-hmm. our political options, mm-hmm. or we're going to accept the fact that we do have just two choices. Um, and, of course, you know, that's why a lot of people were upset with Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. because they thought that he was siphoning off votes um, of that could have gone to Hillary Clinton. Same paradigm right? always. Exactly. And, you know, um, as a result of, there were a lot of things that came into play mm-hmm. um, sure. when Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016. I want to make it clear, though, however, that in both elections, 2016 and 2020, he did not win the popular vote. I know. Um, and that's another thing. What he like, won in 2016 was the Electoral College, and there uh-huh. is an issue there, right oh. there, because the Electoral College, needs, in my opinion, needs to be gone. Okay? Totally. I mean, they the need two, to exit. That, that, it's, it's an undemocratic process. No. <clears throat> and, and same with the Senate. That's not a democratic institution, because it's like you get two senators for every state, no matter how big or small you are. Exactly. So it's like if you get rid of the Senate and you get rid of the, the Electoral College, all of a sudden you're like, you know, because you realize, actually... Uh, uh, majority of the the majority of people uh, in this country, their will on specific issues and what they want on specific issues generally is not put into law and practice. So the will of the people is generally not being done no. by our current legislature. No, it is not, and we can see that. I mean, look at what's going on right now. Uh, is the Supreme Court adhering to the will of the people? No. <laughs> At this point, not at all. I mean, you know, it's been shown time and time again totally. that some 80% of Americans support um, some form of abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, the Supreme Court just struck it. Well, they basically made it, turned it back to the states. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, states' rights, come on. You know, if they ever go back to the point of states' rights, well, then we can get to the point, back to the point of, you know, if I take a bus past the Mason Dixon line, I'm going to have to move to the back of it because that's, <laughs> that's what I'm, you know, that's what we're going to do. Um, mm-hmm. uh, affirmative action has just been struck down. Oh well, we've reached racial parity. The hell we have. <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about racial parity, I mean, I would just lead people to you know the 1619 project mm. and critical race theory that came. You know, the 1619 Which you project not even teach in Florida. Oh, I know. And the 1619 project was put put forth in 2000. I'm sorry, uh, in 19. 2019 and but critical race theory what a lot of people probably don't know is that that's been around since the 70s oh yeah and just talking about structural and systematic uh, systemic racism that is institutionalized um and has uh you know is pervasive in our society in terms of um real estate 
in terms of dividing lines in Let cities. Let me tell you a story. Please. Which, um, oh, wait. We don't have time. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> you lied to me. Um, which I think, okay, the whole thing about critical race theory or teaching the truth about America's racist past mm-hmm. and present, but mm-hmm. particularly, let's say, slavery, mm-hmm. which is being passed off in some circles as a management dispute or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I worked on a project um, about 10 years ago where Medill students joined with 10 German students from the University of Hamburg. Mm-hmm. We did a Holocaust perspective. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned this, the memory yeah, archives. Yeah, 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 the memory archives. We're interviewing um, not only the few and very elderly survivors mm-hmm. of the Holocaust, but often... Their children and grandchildren to show of deceased Holocaust survivors to show that the effect continues through generations. Traumas passed down. The traumas passed yeah, down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even yeah. after the person who went through it is is, is, is deceased. Well, there was one student. Um, I've forgotten her name, but she and and the Medill student interviewed um, an elderly um, um, Holocaust survivor mm. who who was very gracious, very generous, mm-hmm. and after the interview. They were very professional. This student broke down into tears. Oh, really? Just cried, the German student, cried and cried and cried. Found out that the reason she was crying is because her grandfather, a man that she loved, had been SS. Oh, my. He was in the SS? Yes. Wow, okay. So she had to accept the fact that her grandfather, and she knew this, but her grandfather was involved in the extermination of people like this lovely woman that she just well, I mean, it, it, I mean, she may have known it conceptually, but it probably hit home. This put her this this put it right in front of her face. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that was hard to deal with. Yes. Of course, that was traumatic. It was horrible, but she dealt with it. Right. And that's that, the point. That's what we're not doing in this no, country that's with what regard we're not to doing slavery. Now. Yeah. You know what? It's going to hurt you. It might make you sad. It might make it. It might traumatize you. But <laughs> you think. It's traumatizing you. What do you think it did to my ancestors? Exactly. Exactly. So face it. Deal with it. Yes. Be brave. Don't be, you know, they they talk about how so-called liberals are snowflakes. Are you kidding me? That's the biggest snowflake thing I can think of. That's that's a that's a that's a blizzard. Okay. (laughs) I can't face the the past that my great grandfather might have been a slave owner. That's gonna traumatize me. Oh come on. The the intellectual (laughs) gymnastics is is so absurd to me where people think, well, you know, parents of students say, Well, um, you know, I don't want my kid to think that they're racist, their white children are racist or what have you, which is obviously not the point. The point really from my perspective is that you know things like critical race theory and the 69 project 1619 project are simply an attempt to for you know probably the first time to really talk about the history of this country in a honest way yeah particularly about the black experience yeah. and how integral that was and how this country was built on the backs of black people that were kidnapped from Africa. And because we build can't it. deal with that, we can't get past it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like that's that's the thing that's hugely missing. In in Germany you 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 deny the Holocaust, you go to you go to jail. Yeah. There are memorials all around Germany. There's a there's a there's an open societal acknowledgement of what happened. Yeah. We need that here. They're and facing f- it. And so yeah, and so 
you know, of course people are going to go batshit crazy when you, for the first time, acknowledge something that is clearly the elephant in the room. And people are just like, oh my God, I can't do that. I can't teach that. I can't, this can't be uh, possibly taught about because it's going to upend the way we do business, the way we function as a society. And what other people don't, what people who deny that don't realize is there's so much possibility on the other yeah. end of that. And so, you know, if you just look at anybody who denies that this is happening, just look at the wealth gap. Yes. Between black people and everybody else exactly. in this country. Look at the wealth accumulation gap. And it's still largely unchanged from decades ago. Yeah. What's going on with that? Blacks were not included in the GI Bill. They were redlined with real estate, uh, buying real estate and homes, and it goes on and on and on. So as a result of that, we don't have wealth to pass on to the next generation. <laughs> exactly. So okay. that lacks power. We don't on a, we don't know about stocks and bonds and, you know, because the whole issue for so many black families wasn't about stocks and bonds. It was about putting food on the table. Exactly. And, and staying employed, if you could possibly manage that. Yeah. Um, so there's just, you know what, if I were Secretary of Education, okay, there are probably a lot of people out there who would be glad that I'm not after I say this, <laughs> there would be certain books, are you kidding, being banned? They would be on the reading list. But I would also <laughs> pass a law or decree that every junior high school and high school would be required to show their student classes two movies, hmm. Schindler's List <clears throat> and 12 Years a Slave. <clears throat> okay? Because those are two of the most brutally honest movies I have ever seen <clears throat> about putting forth something that we need to face. Yeah, for okay? sure. For there sure. was a Holocaust. People <clears throat> died. People suffered. Okay? Mm -hmm. There was slavery in this country. For African Americans, this was our Holocaust. Oh, totally. People died. People suffered. Those are two those two movies are difficult to sit through. Oh they are extremely I, hard to I sit through. And I sat through both of them. I did too. And once you do slave, that, boy. you see that I mean the scene in Twelve Years a Slave <laughs> where, you know, the girl is beaten at the end. I can't even watch that. Yeah, I mean it's it's, okay? it's yeah. But it's, it's it needs to be there. Yeah, you know, exactly. Chinda's list when the, <clears throat> Don't the girl is, the, the architect is telling him, you're doing this the wrong way. And the guy says, shoot her. And uh, they shoot her. And then they say, do it the way she said. People exactly. need to see that. Yes. You know, and this whole thing of, I want to protect you from the truth. Protecting you from the truth is not going to help you. It's only perpetuating a lie. What happens if you raise your kid? I, I always use this parable. You raise your kid in this little, you know, protected um, bubble uh -huh. where you won't have to deal with anybody that doesn't look like you mm -hmm. or doesn't think the way you do mm -hmm. or doesn't come from the same community that you are. Mm -hmm. That's fine if you're going to stay there. You know, mm -hmm. what is Jason Aldean's, you know, try that in a small town. Uh -huh. If you want to stay in that little small town, you'll be fine. <clears throat> but let's mm -hmm. say, you know, you're the smart one in your family. And... You get accepted to the to a, a prestigious university, maybe Northwestern, mm -hmm. and you're the first one in your family to go off to college. Mm -hmm. Isn't this wonderful? Mm -hmm. And then you go off to Northwestern, you walk into a classroom, and the first person you see is me. What does that do to your head? Because they've just told you, black people are trash, but this person is my professor. Right. Okay? Right. Or you graduate, and you go <clears throat> off you know, to and your first job, mm -hmm. and the first person you see is someone like me, mm -hmm. or maybe someone who's Asian, or East Indian, mm -hmm. or Hispanic, mm -hmm. or a woman, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay? And you've been told to think a certain way about these people, and now this person has a definite impact on how much progress you're going to make. Mm-hmm. How does oh, that mess with your head? Okay? Oh, exactly. Or you, you leave this country, God, if you're lucky, and you go someplace <clears throat> else, and you end up in a place in Africa, mm-hmm. okay, or Asia or Southeast Asia, and you're around people who don't look like you, mm-hmm. who don't, you know, come from your background. How does that mess with your head? If you raise your kid, and I'm saying this for everybody across the board, right? Right. right. Um, if you raise your kid to only be, to only accept one kind of people, you're crippling that kid for life. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's what you're doing. Traveling is, I mean, traveling is one of the ways to combat against all this. And you know what I, what was really inspiring. you can give yourself. Oh, totally. And a couple of, of students of yours, one of whom I've spent time with, and I want to touch on the other one is Jack Bridges, ah, who, um, you know, you him. and I worked on a wonderful uh, project together called Inside Robert Taylor. Jack Bridges, a young white, former white student of yours. Uh, he was, he's still white, but he was a former <laughs> student. But, um, but he went into, you know, I, I asked you about this. I, you know, he, he took these incredible pictures inside the Robert Taylor projects before they were sh- um, torn down. Yeah. <clears throat> and he got unprecedented access. Yeah, he did. Once and I he said, got the trust of the people yeah, there. And I asked you, I said, was he from a big city? And you're like, no, he was just kind of from, I think he was from Rhode Island or something. He's from um, out east, um, uh, Michigan, uh, oh. Ann Arbor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ann well, Arbor. I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't brought up in, 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 uh, in, in the streets. I no. mean, he wasn't brought up around. His father any... was a stockbroker. Yeah, exactly. He was probably a well-to-do, It lived in a well-to-do neighborhood. Very much so. But somehow he was able to, to get. Went to Bucknell before he went to Medill, you know. Where? Bucknell University. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he probably, he was able to get unprecedented access he sure because he embodied what, you know, I would imagine you and I are probably on the same page about in terms of what a a really good journalist should be is that he was respectful. He was very respectful. And I mean, when, when we would go to Taylor with him, it was, he was like a rock star, you know, I mean, Jack is here, Jack is here. And these are people who, you know, don't trust white folks. Exactly. Uh, But they loved him. Exactly. I'll give you an example. One day I was with him and um, he had a, he would, Jack would often take Polaroids. I don't know if younger people know what those are, but those were, (laughs) Instant photographs. You know, you, you know take what a that picture. Is, Madeline? Okay. <laughs> Instant pictures. And he would take Polaroids before he actually took his actual photos to see how they were going to look. Right. And one day I was with him at Taylor and he was taking Polaroids and people would come up to him and Jack, take my picture. Jack, take my picture. Right, right, right. He must have burned up about, because Polaroid film was expensive. So right, he must have right. burned up about $200 in Polaroid film that day, just taking people's pictures because they asked him. Right, right. And I asked him why he did that, and he said, well, a lot of these people have never had a picture taken of themselves. And you could see it, because they would, he'd give them the picture, and they'd be walking away looking at the picture with a smile on their face. Mm-hmm. You know, I think at one point, if I'm not mistaken, he took somebody's kid to the hospital. Um, uh, it does not surprise me. You know, he just, first of all, does not a, surprise me at he's all. a very kind and generous person. It, gentle, too. Gentle, beautiful exactly. spirit. And that came out when he was talking to people, that this wasn't just for him. Uh-huh. That he was actually, when we finished the project, uh, he wanted to go by and thank people Mm -hmm. who had given him his time. Mm -hmm. He had little poinsettias 
Mm-hmm. Um, this was near Christmas. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because he said he noticed two things whenever he would go to these people's <laughs> apartments, that the two things that were missing. Mm-hmm. They didn't have books and they didn't have plants. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just that kind of sensitivity right. and awareness. He didn't just come in. You know, here's a contrast. Um, mm-hmm. A couple of years later, there were a couple of students at Medill, mm-hmm. white students, mm-hmm. um, young ladies, who wanted to go by Cabrini Green when Cabrini Green was still standing. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to do um, some interviews. And they came to me because they knew about the Robert Taylor Project. Uh-huh. Well, Steve, um, we wanted to come to you and, and ask you, you know, how we should do this. We were thinking about going with a police officer. I said, that is the worst thing you could possibly do. <laughs> <I don't. laughs> this is absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do. <laughs> right. I've come here to interview you for you to share some details of, of your life. By the way, this police officer is here to protect me from you. Okay? Was, well, you know, well, how do we do it? I said, you take your chances. You let these people know you're coming, and then you go in and you talk to them the way you would talk to anyone else. You respect it. Exactly. And that's what they did. Exactly. And that's what Jack did. Yeah. He didn't need a police officer. Yeah. You know, he went there on his own. He yeah. took his chances. Yes, he could have had his ass kicked, yep. a lot of other things, yep. but it didn't happen. <clears throat> it and didn't. it didn't happen because of the way that he approached this project and the way he approached the people who live there. Exactly. And I mean, I it's everything. Unenduring respect. Yeah, yes. I mean, everlasting respect for them. Oh, I remember when you showed me, the, and by the way, Inside Robert enduring Taylor is, for our audience, is an exceptional portrait of people through photo- photography in exceptional um mainly still photography you can find it bridges. simply by googling uh inside well Robert it's Taylor on YouTube. our Rhyth- rhythm and light youtube channel exactly. we have it up there and we'll I suggest put a link- you watch it yes and it's beautiful and um and mr garnett here wrote it and narrated it imagine a pleasant conversation with a middle-aged woman in her kitchen she is stout with deep, umber skin. She is sitting on a worn-out sofa as the fine aroma of what she's cooking travels through the room. There is about her an easy informality as she speaks about the simple details of her life day to day. Her speech still has the soft cadence of the South, where she once dreamed of living in a new house in a large and prosperous northern city. Half that dream has come true. She lives in Chicago, but her home is in Robert Taylor, a place known for robbing people of their dreams. And it's really and wonderful. Steve Ordauer put it all together. Yeah, <laughs> and I was, I was honored and privileged. And we to... lost one team member recently, um, Greg. Oh yes, Greg Jackson yeah. did the uh, video. So there is some video. May you rest some yeah. peace, uh, Greg Jackson, um, who both of us have worked with uh, many times mm-hmm. on many different occasions in a variety of ways. And yeah, I mean that the when I saw the photography, I mean he he shot film large format and regular 35 millimeter film yeah it was just absolutely stunning and it took my breath away i said yeah of course i'd like to be involved in this and now i believe medill shows uh it to incoming freshmen this project um, they do they do um i don't know if they still do but for a long time yes they did yeah uh, including that's how i met uh, jesse kirsch because he they showed it to the audience the entire freshman class Mm-hmm. And um, then they had me come up and and, and answer questions. Mm. And Jesse was one of the first people to ask a question. Mm. And I said, "Oh, this kid is sharp." You mm-hmm. know? So when I did this the project in Hamburg, 
there were seven graduate students mm-hmm. and three undergrads. Mm. And Jesse was one of the undergrads. He mm. was the youngest person on that project. He just finished his freshman year. Nineteen-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And now he's a correspondent for NBC. Uh huh. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that doesn't surprise me. But yeah, he he saw it, uh-huh. as did the whole freshman class. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they still the graduate students have seen it too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and the reason that that project was shown was for a variety of reasons, but one of them was to, well, two reasons. Uh, one was to let them know what journalists have to do in order to get a true story. Exactly. You have to go to the source. You do not believe what anybody tells you. You yeah. believe what you see. Because there's so much in our society where people are responding to what other people said a certain subject said as opposed to well did you listen to it from their mouth yeah no matter who it is how controversial yeah whether it be donald trump hillary clinton bernie sanders louis farrakhan i don't care who it is did you listen to it come out of their mouth and did you go to the scene did you see it yourself yes okay yes are you listening to it from them in context yeah yes because of course jack knew robert taylor was dangerous of course but totally. that didn't stop him from going. I know. And, you know, there's a, another student that I have an inc- incredible amount of respect for that, unfortunately, I did not get to meet. That's no longer with us. But I was on the Medill campus teaching at Northwestern, and all of a sudden, these bells started ringing. And I was like, you know... You're talking class- about Jim. James Foley. Yeah. And, I mean, even just saying his name gets me... And I didn't even know the guy. I get I emotional about it. I do um, Could you talk a little bit about him and his courage? Whew. What can I say about James Foley? He was one of the most real people I've ever known in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and he believed very strongly in going where the story was. Mm-hmm. Now, I have... A personal opinion about Jim. Um, I don't think he was murdered, and I do say murdered. And I always hate to say this 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 expression that you know he was executed. They didn't have you know they didn't have any right to execute anybody. They weren't a you know a a a, a, a sovereign state. ISIS. Right. Right, uh, right, there was right. no trial. They murdered him. Okay. On video, just for our audience member. Unfortunately, exactly. this young man, this courageous young man, was beheaded. Yes. It was horrifying. Video. It was horrifying. Um, I've never seen that video, by the way. And Me I never neither. Will. I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it. Um, There's a documentary he, on HBO about him, I think he might have been targeted because he was a war correspondent. Mm-hmm. But Jim would go beyond that and mm-hmm. actually talk to people and show what was happening to people who were being affected by this war. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, he'd have to be very honest about what damage was being done to people and by whom mm-hmm. so what happened is that i've heard that he was actually a first at first captured by syrian forces right right who sold him to terrorists oh. um and he went through hell mm-hmm. absolute hell um in the year and a half that he was held before he was murdered oh wow um, well, there was another time where he was actually kidnapped. I don't know if it in was... In Libya. In Libya. And then yeah. he actually made it back. And then he went back... He went back to work. He went back to work. He came to <sighs> Medill. And um, they had a, 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 a session with him in the forum, which is a place where students gather. Uh-huh. And, you know, he was very... 
gracious and honest about answering questions. Um, these students, the Libyans held them, I've forgotten how long now, this, either several, several months, I think. Mm. And um, yeah, it was terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Jim was a Catholic and very religious. Oh, really? I oh, didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Every time he sent me an email from, I used to tell him <laughs> when he was a correspondent, because, you know, war correspondence is extremely dangerous. And yes. I would tell him, would you please keep in touch? Uh-huh. And I'd said, you know, even if it was just, an, even if it's just an email saying, "Hey, Steve, I'm still breathing. Please right, do right, that." Right, 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 right. So every now and then, he'd send me an email that said, "Hey, Steve, I'm still breathing. <laughs> God bless you." Very, very um, nice of him. But it would always would end it. God bless you. But anyway, um, you know, he talked about how he got through those days, mm-hmm. um, and it was it was pretty horrifying. It was really terrifying. Actually, one of the correspondents who was captured with him was killed. Uh, a Danish, I think, uh, correspondent mm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was held um, by the Libyans um, for, I think, three months. It's, been, it's getting a little foggy uh-huh. now because that was back in 2011, I right. think. Um, he came to Medill in May of that year. I think mm-hmm. it was 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and spoke about it very candidly uh, to the students. Mm. And I saw him afterwards. And uh, he had a desk job forgotten uh, McClatchy he had a desk job with the McClatchy News Service okay and I asked him how he how how he liked it he said it's boring as hell <laughs> yeah I said well are you thing. are you gonna you know I mean are you gonna stay here or whatnot he said well I'm gonna visit with my family and some friends I'm gonna go back to work and that's what he did right he went back and started covering the war uh in Iraq um and we know the end result of it and you know, I've had some very naive people ask me, well, God, why was he there? He was doing his job. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always said, again, this is a personal opinion, that the two most important um, genres of journalism, investigative and war correspondence, mm. and both can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Investigative because there's a difference between covering something and uncovering something. Yeah, that's for sure. You cover something that's happened. Uh-huh. But investigative journalists go in there and find out why it happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you can ruffle some feathers. You can ruffle quite a few feathers. People might want to, you know, don't hurt forget you. about Don Bowles, the <laughs> investigative journalist who got in his car one morning in 1984 and it exploded. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, um, absolutely. And then there's war correspondence. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to know the progress of a conflict, who's winning and who's losing, because that conflict can catch up with you. Mm-hmm. So you need to know what's going on there. You need mm-hmm. to know, and you know, you and see, why it's happening. Why like it's for happening. real? Oftentimes, what we're led to believe is is just the surface information. Then exactly. there's a whole other story beneath the. You need somebody who can get in, you know, in depth with this mm-hmm. and tell you why something is happening and where it is progressing. Uh-huh. Okay, absolutely. Um, and I've always said, you know, I'm for the first investigative reporting. I'll do that. I ain't doing no war correspondence. Uh-huh. It takes a certain kind of person to do that, and I admit I don't have the guts for that. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's the thing that struck me about his story, um, James Foley's story, is just the incredible amount of courage that mm. he had. As and, 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 and how old was he? When he died, he was 40. Um, young man. Um, yeah. When he started... I think he might have been about, well, he was in my class. He was in his early 30s. So I think by oh, the time okay. he started, when he became a war correspondent, he was probably about 35. Okay. Um, and you, if you see the video, I mean, the videos that he would send, oh, my God, he had on his 
helmet and his flak jacket. Yeah, oh, I've seen pictures and they of would him. Literally, be, you could hear the, the bullets yep. whizzing past his head. I mean, he was in the thick of it. I don't um, understand. I mean, I don't understand how you willingly go to that situation. You but have he, to. He, well, yeah, he, has he a admitted he was an adrenaline junkie. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah, yeah. He admitted yeah. that. Right, right. Um, and you have to be. Mm-hmm. You can't be a cautious person mm-hmm. and do that kind of work. It's just it. It ain't going to work. You know. You you have to be someone who's willing to take tremendous risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you either have to think of. You either have to accept the fact that you you could die, totally, or you have to go the opposite direction and just convince yourself that you won't. <laughs> I don't know how else you do it. I wonder if he got more religious as he was. Covered. I wonder that too. If, if he'd lived, I'd have asked him that. I wonder that too. Yeah. I really do. Um, if he'd lived, um, he was. Uh, you know, some I've taught a lot of people at Medill, thousands, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of them I get kind of close to. I mean, oh, how been, can you not? As I've said, that has been the most pleasant part of the experience, and the only reason I'm still there, and I've been there all these years. It's mm-hmm. you know, it's I talked about the difference between being a professor and a teacher. Right. I I am a professor on paper. Right. But what I've always been is a teacher. Totally. Um, my mother was a teacher, and mm-hmm. she was a damn good one. And I asked her once, you know, what's your secret? What is it that? <laughs> why is it that? You have people coming by your house who are now doctors, lawyers, police officers, nurses, teachers themselves who still remember what Mrs. Garnett taught them in the fourth grade. And she said, it's just a simple route. Teach them well and respect them. Hmm. And I've never forgotten that. Yeah. Okay. Totally. So that's what I do. Totally. Um, that's what's kept me there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of all the thousands of people I've taught, there are really only a few that I've gotten really very close to. Mm-hmm. You know, some that I might have taught five, ten 12, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and I still hear from them. I still see them when they come through town. I just had lunch, oh, just a couple of days ago mm-hmm. with a young lady, Monique Beals, um, mm-hmm. who was a former student of mine, a mm-hmm. graduate student. You know, a couple of months before that, Marco Alday, who's now working for ProPublica. Um, mm-hmm. uh, early last month, Jesse Kirsch. Mm-hmm. You know, every time he comes through Chicago, he makes sure, you know, he gets in touch, you know. That's Spoke awesome. to Brian Watson. You know, someone I taught almost 20 years ago. He sends me a bottle of of whiskey on my birthday every year. You know, Oh, that's so awesome. Michael Duffin, who works for the State Department. I could go on and on. I bet you, you know. You know, and name people. But the reason these friendships form is because at some point in time, there is a discussion outside the classroom where we click on certain issues. Exactly. Um, And we develop this easy relationship that continues, and I get a chance to see what these people do when they leave. That is always the best thing for me, yeah. no matter who you are as a student. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. You know, yeah. what do you do with the education that you've gotten in Medill? And I get to see that. Yeah, man. And I was sometimes a- I actually get to to be a personal witness to it when they keep in touch. And not only that, I get to see them get married and have kids. Yep. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's just wonderful. Yeah, I was at a wedding of a former student of mine, and then a bunch of other former students were there, and I was just like, oh, I'm From Medillo, Columbia. Or, or for, actually, from the Illinois Institute of Art. Okay, um, yeah. And, you know, oh, I'm working at the NFL. Oh, I'm working at... Um, uh, I'm working at HBO. I'm working at Vice, etc. You know, thanks for all you you know you taught me, etc. I I totally get that. I I just didn't want to, you know. You were talking about. I want to mention Nia uh, Arnold. Um, okay. Who is a teacher herself now? 
that to me is so amazing. I mean, who is some, this? She, Nia Arnold. Okay, where's um, she at? She teaches in uh, at a um, uh, public school in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. And the thing about it is that, yeah, it's so wonderful when they become journalists, mm-hmm. but probably the greatest thing is for a teacher to see another student become a teacher. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. a great teacher. Right, right. You know, and I complimented her recently and told her, you know, because she's a great teacher. She's doing mm-hmm. such a great job. You know, mm-hmm. the kids love her. Um mm-hmm. And I complimented her that on that, you know, and I said, that is just so great to see that. And she said, that started with you. you know, That's beautiful. You taught me how to do this. Uh, and that is beautiful. You know, I mean, that, that can, it does, it, it can almost wipe away all the crap I've had to go through. <laughs> yeah, I know. At, at, at NU, okay? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, <laughs> We'll get on that another subject, but I've made it clear that the reason I've been there all those years is because of the students. Yeah, absolutely. And there is no other reason. Uh, yeah, no. Well, you also, I mean, you were able to, I mean, I don't know if, you know, how, you know, much involved Northwestern or how helpful they were with some of the projects you were involved with, like the memory archives, but but there was another one that you mentioned as something that was dear to you, which was Fight for Life. Flight for Life. Flight for Life. Flight for Life. Forgive me. Could you yes. please talk about that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, that was the second project I did with the University of Hamburg. Um, okay. the, um, the German director of the uh, memory archives. Okay. Um, it's Professor Stefan, Dr. S- uh, Stefan Burkhardt. We, okay. we share the first oh, name. Oh, yeah, I think I met him once, yeah, right? Yeah, you did. Uh, yeah, okay. We call each other name brothers. Um, right, Steph. Right. Although his first That's name is spelled differently than yes, mine, but it's that I remember the same that. Okay. okay. Um, he got in touch a year after we did the memory archives Okay. and said that they had some money to spend and he wanted to do a second project. Okay. And he said, do you have any ideas? And it just so turns out I did. Right. This was at the height of the uh, Arab Spring when uh, a lot of people had to leave um, uh, their their countries mm-hmm. for their own safety and well-being, often with or without their families. Mm. And they were coming through Hamburg because Germany at that time was a lot more gracious about accepting, um, uh, at least at that time, mm. refugees. Mm-hmm. I said, you're in the perfect place for this. Mm. So we got together with Medill. We it was um, eleven students from Medill. Ten of them went to Hamburg. One actually went to Jordan okay. to a, a refugee camp in Jordan mm-hmm. and did a five minute video on the medical and dental state of children in this refugee camp. Mm-hmm. The other ten students joined with twelve students from the University of Hamburg and ten other students who came over from uh, St. Petersburg State University in Russia. Mm. 33 students um, divided into uh, 10 teams of three, and they each produced a story. Mm. Um, More often a written story, but some of them were video stories, some of them were audio stories. Mm -hmm. For instance, there was one story that was done by one team in which they went into a refugee camp uh, near Hamburg, Mm-hmm. And did a 12-minute audio story, and they all three narrated it. Mm. Some of the most amazing work. Mm-hmm. Um, another team looked at the efforts to integrate the refugee children uh, into the German school system. Mm-hmm. Um, another team um, did a video story of a um, um, refugee from Afghanistan mm. um, who had been 
who was actually coerced into selling drugs for the Taliban. Oh, wow. And when he refused to do so, they threatened to kill him. Mm. So he had to leave, and he was in Germany. And they were, there was a risk that he might be sent back to Afghanistan because Germany at that time did not consider Afghanistan to be a war-torn country. Mm. Wow. And, you know, if he went back, he would be murdered. Wow. And the whole time that they were interviewing him, he kept snapping this rubber band uh, against his wrist. And um, he was the reason he did that is because he said every time he felt pain, he knew he was alive. Oh, wow. Um, uh-huh. There's another story, an, a, an audio story of a um, young woman who left Afghanistan because the Taliban wanted to take her 12-year-old daughter and marry her off to a 48-year-old man. Oh, my God. After she'd been sexually mutilated. Oh, my God. These are the kind of stories that were coming out of there. From wow. Afghanistan, from Syria, mm-hmm. from Iraq, from Sudan. They interviewed people from about half a dozen different countries and produced these stories. And you just don't see this. No. I mean, most of mainstream no. media consumers don't no. see this, this type was at of the story. Height. And also, what was interesting is that they were working with Russian students, and we supposedly have this, you know, this, this, this terrible relationship with Russia. But I'm telling you, these Russian students were very anxious to be a part of this project. Mm. Most of the writing was done by the Medill students because mm-hmm. the stories were written in English. Mm-hmm. But the reason why we were able to do this story, all of these stories, to produce this project, and I want to make this clear, in six days, we got there, I think, on June 8th, and we left on the 14th, mm-hmm. is because all the German students had set up all the interviews. Wow. By the time we got there, we could hit the ground running mm-hmm. because they had already contacted people. Mm-hmm. And set up interviews, contacted refugees, contacted social what workers. What year was this? this? 2016. 2016. Okay. okay. Um, so they were able to hit the ground running. They also translated because some of these interviews were done in German. Oh, my gosh. And there were Incredible. two students. Um, one was originally from Afghanistan and the other was from, from Morocco. Mm. They spoke Farsi. Okay. Incredible. So if someone spoke German or Farsi, there were two students on that. There were students on that on on the on the project who could translate, okay, Incredible. and then all of that information was taken back to Saint Petersburg, Russia, and the Russian students built the website. That's so this incredible. was a thoroughly collaborative effort. That is, um, and, and by the way, is there are they on the web? Are they on the internet somewhere? Or was it taken down? I don't know. I you know it was for a while. I it, this breaks my heart. It's called Flight for Life, right? It well, used to be used to be able to find it at flightforlife.com. If, if there if it's anywhere on the internet, we'll put this in the show notes for sure. Yeah, for if we can episode. find it. Yeah. I also wanted to touch on before we get to incentive back to incentive structures, but I did want to touch on you know we talked about critical race theory, we talked mm-hmm. about the sixteen nineteen project, and you know. It's really hard for somebody who's not black to wrap their heads around what it is like to be black in this country. And you wrote, you're now freed up to express your opinions. Um, what is what is the where where do you post your um, your opinion pieces online again? Uh, Max News Today. Max News Today. And in one of your articles, you wrote um, an article. MaxNewsToday.com. Okay, and it's called "Driving Us Crazy." Oh. Yeah. Um, and it talked about, you know, being pulled over mm. as a black person mm. versus um, a white person or any other um, color person. Um, and I thought about that 
a lot, even though I, you know, I've known about this for years growing up in Hyde Park and having my, you know, Sid Ordauer as my father. So that's a little different story. However, you know, I remember countless times I've been pulled over the, by the police and never, ever been harassed except for one time. <laughs> one time where I was pushed down. I had down, a cop um, put a loaded gun in my forehead on the night of my 21st birthday. And what happened? What happened is um, two friends of mine came out for the first legal drink. Mm-hmm. We went to a club that used to exist on McClurk Court called mm-hmm. Tenement Square. Mm-hmm. Discotheque, you know. Okay. Disco dancing. Sounds fun. It was, you know. Right. And um, when we got there, we realized that I'd done something stupid, which is that I'd actually forgotten to bring my driver's license. Mm, mm, mm. So we were getting back into the car. There was a parking lot a couple of places, a couple of blocks away. This was obviously, you know, on the near north side in a very exclusive neighborhood. Right. And we were getting back into the car to go back out to my house to get my driver's license. Mm. And within seconds, all of a sudden, it's like three or four police cars, well, two or three police Mm. cars just swooped into the lot. The next thing we know, there are these, this like, half a dozen police officers you know all white Mm -hmm. screaming at us get the fuck out of the car get out of the car get out of the car get out of the car they went around to the driver's Uh side and they pulled my friend al literally reached in and pulled him out of the car Mm -hmm. and then there was another cop that was trying to pull uh my friend gordon out of the front seat i was Mm -hmm. in the back seat Mm -hmm. and we're saying look we can get out we can get out they lined us up behind the back of the car and this is the thing about it. They're, they're screaming at us. We don't know what's going on. We, we have no idea what this is about. Uh-huh. But through the screaming and what we heard on the radio, it apparently came through that they were looking for three black guys who had robbed somebody and shot them. Ah, uh, oh. Wow. And we were saying, we're not the ones you're looking for. Uh-huh. Um, and they, they, yes, you are. Yes, you are. We got a report. You fit the description. You, your car fits the description. Uh-huh. You know, you're driving a light blue Chevy. And my friend Al pointed out, that's a metallic blue Pontiac. This cop slapped him oh. for correcting him. Wow. Well, what happened is, um, as this was going on, they wanted identification. Well, remember, I right. didn't have my driver's license. <laughs> my heart's beating a thousand you know, miles a minute at this point because... Uh-huh. I'm thinking, okay, I'm really in trouble now. I don't right. have any identification. The only thing I had was my laminated student ID card. That mm. was the only pictured ID I had. Mm. So I picked that. I took that out, and I showed it to the cop who had been screaming and spitting in my face <laughs> and standing in front of me. I gave it to him. Right. Can I say what he said? What did he say? Well, he looked at it, and he said, oh, this has got to be bullshit because, in word, okay, uh-huh are too stupid to go to college and oh, threw it in the gutter. wow. And what I, year was this about? 73. In Chicago? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I said, did you just call me the N-word? Of course, I said the word. All right. He said, yeah. I said, well, it takes one to know one. Wow, okay. And he wow. took out his service revolver, and he put it right in the center of my forehead. Huh. I remember I could see the bullets in the chamber. And I remember thinking, I'm going to die tonight on whoa, my 21st whoa. birthday. It was one of the most terrifying experiences I've ever had huh. in my life. I mean, I never, you never told me this. I was trying to do everything I could to not pass out. Um, I bet. And, you know, my two friends were looking and they were just petrified. I bet they were. And then. What possessed you to say that? 
I was angry. Yeah, I bet. I mean, I was I was scared, but I was also angry. I yeah. mean, you know, he just called me that word. Yeah. No, I, I get understand it. something. You know, my father always said that was the worst word in the English language. That is what I have grown up believing to this sure. day. Right, right. I sure. hate hearing it. Yeah, I hate hearing sure. black people say it. That's one reason I don't like rap music. And okay? it's like, and you know, and it's 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 glory. You know, it's I, a disgusting word. It totally, and it's glorified. In I mean. Hip hop, I don't know if you've noticed, particularly with hip hop and rap, you know, it's transformed into something that really kind of lost sight of its like its roots. That's a whole nother story. Yeah. <laughs> I have a real problem with all of that, but But go ahead. Just please. as fast as all of this happened, they got a report that apparently they had cited or arrested the other guys and as quickly as they came, they jumped into their cars and left us. And of course they apologized. No, and, oh, they didn't. No, they didn't oh, say that's shit. so interesting. They didn't that's say a damn thing. Surprising, <laughs> isn't it shocking? No, oh, we're sorry. You know, you know, you you can go on your way. They didn't say anything. They just got in the cars and sped off. So how would how would you give context to people who are not black to understand that that probably wouldn't have happened to you unless you were black? I don't know how you can, because the whole thing is, if you're not African-American, or if you especially don't know any, Mm -hmm. or if you've never had any who've who've been honest with you about the experience, you can't see it. So, like, where would you, well, let me put it to you this way, what would you lead people to, whether it be a film, or articles, or anything, or the 1619 Project, or Critical Race? It's like having a third eye. Yeah. Okay. I mean, what could and give you're going to constantly be reminded that you have that third eye. Right. There's an eye in the middle of your forehead, uh-huh. and you know I don't have that eye, and I'm glad I don't have that eye, and it's too bad you do have that eye, right. or I don't like you because you have that eye. Uh-huh. It sets you apart. It makes you different. You know, you were just talking about the editorials, okay? Yeah. Um, and, um. I wrote an editorial, the first one I wrote, basically, well, not basically, I did, very ardently criticizing the African-Americans um, who spoke at the um, 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 Republican National Convention. And why did you do that? Because I don't have a lot of respect for them. For who specifically? Herschel Walker. Okay. <laughs> Tim Scott. Okay. <laughs> okay. Don't even get me on Candace Owens. She uh, didn't speak, but uh, you know, just uh, we have a word for them. In the black community, for black folks like that, I don't want to say it, but okay. I'll say this: it rhymes with mouse trigger. Okay, <laughs> I mean, really. Um, okay. So, I mean, just okay. Uh, what was your question? <laughs> well, like you know, you well, you were saying you don't have respect for these people. No, I don't. And- I don't. I don't have respect for these people because they're not being honest. Uh, okay, they're not being honest about the black experience, which. And remember, I said not too long ago, for African Americans, this has been the Holocaust. Well, that's you know, what I was. People will say they'll come along and they'll say this is the greatest country in the world. Well, yeah, for you. Well, <laughs> that's what I was trying to. I was trying to get at. Like, what could you direct people toward to get at least some be- substantial understanding? The sixteen nineteen project. Okay, and the reason why I asked is because, like, you brought up these people who are paraded. 
you know, in front of the public and say, hey, this, you know, America's pretty good and we're doing okay, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to be, you know, a proactive, very orchestrated whitewashing well, it of is. the black experience. It is. It is. I mean, it is. I mean, you know, for these people at the Republican National Convention, for Tim Scott to say, oh, you know, my mother was a cleaning woman and, you know, now I'm a, um, 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 a senator. I mm-hmm. mean, hey. That's your experience. Great, wonderful, but that doesn't reflect the experience of most African Americans in this country. Yeah, and, and you it, know that. He knows it, that. Yeah, and that it exactly. I mean, you know, someone could use me as an example where well, you're a college professor. Yeah, okay. You know what? <laughs> that does not reflect the experience of every African American. It doesn't even reflect all of my experience. So you're telling me that exactly. because I'm teaching at a major university, I've never actually had the kind of experience i just described to you right 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 okay you can't escape that exactly you know and it's interesting how you know i recently um found out that clarence thomas in his younger days was into you know the black power movement which i was i was astounded he helped establish the black student union at his uh, undergrad university and he went through this radical transformation which i don't totally understand he sold out he found out it was easier and we'd get farther if he played the game Mm -hmm. if he didn't you know tell the truth Mm -hmm. if he didn't face the truth Mm. clarence thomas thinks he's in a club he's not really in (laughs) right I want to tell you, I want to make that very clear right now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah. he's deluding himself mm. and he's been deluded by people. Mm. All right. If he did one thing, if he ever stepped out and said, you know what? I've been wrong all these years. There is racism in this country. I've experienced it. African-Americans mm-hmm. experience it. They would be done with him in two seconds. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. He's being used. Candace Owens is being used. She's a fool. She's an idiot. All right? She's being used. Yeah. I mean, she seems to change her opinions based on the situation. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And that, that's, what, that's what, you know, you're getting back to, you know, you've got a lot of, you know, the media landscape today, just getting back to that, you've got a lot of people who are influencers, for lack of a better phrase, not real journalists or social commentators, for lack of a better phrase. And they see opportunity to get their name out there, which translates into money. Like, there's no two ways about it. And so we've got these incentive structures that are really counter to having people really informed about what's really going on. So you get this very um, uh, counterproductive interpretation of people's experience, like Candace Owens. Right. Um, and like people, uh, uh, other people of this nature, where they see an opportunity to say things that are provocative, and they get clicks and eyeballs yeah. on their on their um, their content, and it's really counterproductive to creating a better society. Can you speak to the incentive structures that you well, see? Well, the incentive structure is, you know, I mean, you can be rewarded. Look at how... You see this on social media as well. Exactly. You know, look at how Clarence Thomas has been rewarded. Look at how, you know, if you play the game... And could you talk about what what is the game that you're the referring game to specifically? Is, I, you know, I, I understand. It, the game is... It's not that bad being black, you know. It's you know you're they're, you're over they've over exaggerated the experience. It's it's you know mm-hmm. we're not bad people. We you know we haven't done anything wrong. You know the, the which all, is why we don't want it in our schools exactly, in, in Florida exactly, teaching critical race theory exactly because we don't want to talk about we that. we don't want to talk about it we don't want to face it and you're helping us do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. Okay. Because you, you're you one of them. Exactly. And that you can tell them that we're not so bad, mm-hmm. that type of game. Mm-hmm. And they'll believe you because you're one of them, except <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is that we don't. We just think they're mouse triggers, okay? <laughs> There's no way in hell that we believe them. This we're going to get gonna banned work. from YouTube for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this is not going to work. It's right. just, you know... I'm telling you right now, I can, you know, the the, the vast majority of African Americans hate Clarence Thomas. Mm. Okay? Mm. In fact, we don't even call him Clarence Thomas. Call him Uncle Thomas. All right? Mm. Mm. And, Mm. you know, know, Candace Owens, you know, (laughs) Tim Scott, you didn't Mm. have a chance in hell of becoming president of the Republican Party in the first place. Most Republicans these days are too racist to vote for a black man, and Mm -hmm. and black folks can't stand him. Mm -hmm. He's not going to get the, you know, just, this is just the way it is. Um, But, you know, there, but there are. There are, you know, it seems like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of of uh, black people that I've met, particularly in the church-going communities, which is pervasive throughout this country, mm-hmm. definitely in Chicago, um, and my father, you know, lived in those circles, walked in those circles a lot, um, having produced Jubilee Showcase's gospel television show, that they're very socially conservative, mm. but politically progressive. Exactly. So then you've got... Um, the, but then... Remember, but, the, the, the movement started in the churches. Martin yeah, Luther King was a, yeah. minister, was, a, was a preacher. Totally. And so you've got... But, and that there, are a, there are quite a few black people that I've, I've, I've gotten to know over the years that... Are have conservative values, also somewhat politically, because they've been disenchanted with the Democratic Party, and for good reason. Yeah, for a lot for of good, good reason. reason. I mean, a lot of people have said, "Yeah, you know, the Democrats have been pimping black people for years That's and true. getting them to do what they did, not really looked after the um, what black people really need." And you talk about reparations, and I mean, they're like, "Whoa, whoa, what did you say? No, let's not talk about that." Mm-hmm. You know, it's the obvious thing that needs to be talked about. But we can have reparations for Japanese Americans. You see what? You, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, okay. it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's that should ridiculous. be fully on the table, in my humble opinion. Absolutely. 100%, but no Democratic candidate would ever talk about it, and Obama never talked about it. He well, what did you like, just say? Well, what did we just say? Yeah, you know, the Democratic Party has been temping, uh, pimping black folks for years. But what other choice do we have, Republicans? Because there's no other choice, no and other that's, choice. it comes right back we're to two, this. We're, we're back to being a two-party system. Exactly. Okay, if you vote third party, then what you're basically doing is helping a party that you probably don't want to win, win. So okay. then, it, but like, so that, you know, I don't know how hip you are to um, what Andrew Yang is uh, doing mm-hmm. with his mm-hmm. party. And I've been listening to his podcast. It's like, he's cutting across. That's why I love to break through the mold of identity. Right. You know, Republican, Democrat, religious, ethnicity, anything like that. And you really start actually creating a, a, a forum where people are really talking to each other, where there's some person's talking and the other person's listening and then vice versa, as opposed to yelling at each yeah, other and right, like exactly. nobody's really listening. Because the key to real communication and progress in, on any issue, in my humble opinion, is listening. And we don't do a lot of that. And when there's a forum for it, by God, I'm attracted to that. And that's why I listen to his podcast. And he has people from the um, conservative circles and progressive circles and everything in between, which is great. That's what we need in our current political landscape and particularly our media landscape, is doing everything to not have that. Because they're disincentivized to do that because of the money. And so that's what I'm seeing. I mean, 
I mean, I would imagine you would concur with this. And is there any anything that you you know comes to mind in terms of our incentive structures, given how they are and or how they could be corrected, you no, know, to provide for more independent journalism across the board. Well, first of all, yeah, independent journalism would be great, um, except that it's it's difficult to it's difficult to 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 get it out there, um, and it's hard to make the dollars it's to justify very hard it. to make the dollars. Okay, mm-hmm. um, I mean journalism is at a state right now where, especially that thanks to people like Sam Zell, <laughs> um, it's it's become so. Didn't he corporate. buy the Tribune? Yes, he did. Yeah, and ruined it. Yeah, um, okay. It's you know it's become so corporate, like so many other things. You know that's mm-hmm. the problem with universities; they become big corporations, mm-hmm. which is why we have places like Northwestern paying their coaches five million dollars a year uh, because their teams bring in so much money. Yeah, okay. And the students, I don't think, are getting paid. Hey, let me tell you something: you wouldn't have, <laughs> you wouldn't have. Um, Northwestern football or baseball or basketball if you didn't have a Northwestern. And you wouldn't have a Northwestern if you didn't have students, and you wouldn't have students if you didn't have teachers. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that's where it starts. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do, after all, call this higher education. All right? And these students are paying a hell of a lot of money to go to school there. Yes. They so are. I've always looked at it <laughs> is that every student in my class has just bought a brand new Jaguar. Mm-hmm. Because that's about how much money it goes, it costs to go there every year. Or if you're a graduate student, you're spending like $80,000. You're supposed to get your money's worth. Mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to waste your time or your money mm-hmm. with my own projects. Right. Okay. And as you've said, I've done them. Mm-hmm. But I did not do that at the sacrifice of the students in the class. I st- right. You know that project I just mentioned um, that we did in Hamburg? Mm-hmm. I did that while carrying a full class load. Mm-hmm. They didn't give me a quarter off to develop this. Uh-huh. I did that while, while carrying, you know, carrying a full class. Incredible. Load. Well, yeah, that's what you do when you're lower echelon faculty. You don't get, you know, the little perks. Right. <clears throat> you don't right. get to, you know, teach one or two or three classes a year while you work on your individual projects. That's well, not what it you is. You mentioned that you were lower echelon faculty. Mm-hmm. That's anything below associate professor. And why? why do you think that is? Well, part of it's my own choice. Oh, uh, I as I said, I chose to be a teacher rather than a professor. I see. And I think part of it is is the problem that exists with higher education, which is that excellent teaching is not rewarded. Mm-hmm. You have to, if you're not bringing in research dollars or if you're not mm-hmm. bringing in um, attention through what you're researching or what you're publishing, if you're not bringing in those grant dollars, mm-hmm. that's not considered to be service to the university. Mm-hmm. I mean, teaching the students who are paying a shitload of money to come to that school is not enough service to the university. Mm. So you and everybody in academia knows this, right, 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 right. You right. know, you can be the greatest teacher in the world, but that doesn't get you very far. Exactly, and you can be a horrible teacher, but if you're bringing in those grant dollars, they'll keep you forever. So, you. so, I mean, you're disincentivized to do the very thing that actually you're empowers dis- the That's exactly s- it. You're disincentivized to do the very thing that you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Teaching. Yeah. You are. Exactly. And, and that's, that's a huge issue with me, uh-huh. with higher education. It's been the most dis- disillusioning thing I've discovered. Yeah. Um, and as I said, part of this was my own fault. I've been aware of this for a very long time. Uh-huh. But I made a decision mm-hmm. that, you know, all right, they hired me to teach journalism. That's what I'm going to do. 
I mean, it kind of comes down to, well, what are you all about? You know, and you've made, you say it's part of, it's like your own fault, but it, it really actually isn't a fault from my standpoint. It really is something that actually is a beautiful thing where you made a conscious choice. You understood the paradigm and you said, well, I, I'm really a teacher. That's really what well, I'm Well, when I said it's my own fault, that's the way they would put it. Yeah, exactly. If you have not made progress there, it's because you haven't done enough. It's right. like, no, all I've been doing is dragging my ass in that classroom for the past 27 mm-hmm. years and teaching the people that you've encouraged to come here mm-hmm. because you've told them that they're going to get a first-rate education because they're paying for it right that's what i did right right okay right exactly um you know it takes and i'm not i want to understand what this understood Mm -hmm. i'm not putting down the teachers who do the research or who do the publishing Mm -hmm. that's important it absolutely and it's important you have to do a lot of work to work for a tenure Mm -hmm. okay and i'm not putting that down at all Mm -hmm. but it also takes a lot of work to teach a college class effectively. Oh, God, yes. You know this. Uh-huh. And especially when you're doing two a quarter and uh-huh. six a year. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, this is work. And you, half your work is not even in the classroom. It's what you have to do to prepare for it. I mean, and, Oh, and then grading all the papers afterwards. You. I and have like, taught with, all day and then gone home and graded papers all night. And, and the amount of energy it takes yes, in the classroom. Exactly. Is, exactly. is intense. A lot of people don't realize no, that because you're like you're that. engaged. Really, I mean, you have to be to be yeah. effective. I mean, let's say I have 16 students in my class that and they write something. I've got to go through every line of every word they've written mm-hmm. for 16 stories. Right, that takes time. Yeah, and I got to so. comment on it. Uh huh. Okay, and then give it back to them. And, and you can't do, you can't half ass it. No, you cannot half. <laughs> I mean, there are people who do. Yeah. You know, they will just put, you know, they'll read something wonderful, okay, A, or put at the top, terrible, F, and not tell them why, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. You need to go through and explain, this is why this is working, and this is why this isn't working. Exactly. You know, um, it, it takes a lot of work. And there's so much on the line if you really just, you know, you zoom out just a little bit, and yeah. you realize you're training future journalists that will report on critical things that people need to know about at some future point in some media outlet so let me make a point about where this i think this this disassociation comes when it comes to you know is 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 alive and thriving when it comes to higher academics Mm. i've said that yes you know, I'm not putting down the whole thing of, of research and mm-hmm. publishing and, and tenure track. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying that there should be another track, mm. which is that you should be rewarded specifically and exclusively for doing an outstanding job of teaching. Yes, absolutely. I believe that. Yes. That that is not something that should detract from your moving ahead. Mm-hmm. That that is something that should encourage you to move ahead. That, you know, excellent teaching should be rewarded. Yes, absolutely. Right? In the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the second place, I was going to make a second point, which I just lost. Um, but that is a problem, I think, that exists. You know, and it's not all universities, but it is to a very great extent with so-called research universities. Mm-hmm. Now, um, when I started teaching there... I think my first atten- you know, uh, impression was I would teach there three or four years. It'd be on my resume. Mm-hmm. Oh, this guy taught at Medill. You know, he's got his stuff together. I didn't expect to be there all this time. Mm. What, you know, 
attracted me and kind of has kept me there all those years is meeting people like Jack Bridges uh-huh. and Jim Foley uh-huh. and Absolutely. some of the other people that I've mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, these are outstanding people who come through that program. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just been such a pleasure to work with them. Right. And it's exactly. been a little bit addictive. Yeah. <clears throat> I guess that's the best thing to say. Because it's, it's wonderful to teach hungry students. Yeah. It that is. Does. And, and as I've said, doubly wonderful to see what they do with, with that education when they leave. Totally. Absolutely. You know, but, you know, as far as the school is concerned, you know, their attitude is, well, thank you very much. And then, okay, well, you know, what else are you doing? <laughs> Isn't this enough? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, well, getting back to, you know, I, I, I wanted to make sure I touched on this. If you had any thoughts on, you know, given that we're doing, a, you know, a series on incentive structures. And, you know, one of the, the different strands of society that we're going to focus on is healthcare, mm. um, agriculture and health, energy, the justice system, politics. Mm. And uh, obviously the media and politics are, you know, closely intertwined. But if there was anything that comes to mind in terms of, you know, altering the incentive structures to create better journalism and um, more responsible um, publication of reporting. Is there anything that you can think of to foster um, better, more uh, independent and enriching journalism, specifically with regard to our incentive structures? Because the for-profit model, you know, is it a not-for-profit business model? I know Lions Publishing um, helps... um, people create uh create journalism businesses and foster entrepreneurship in the journalism yeah. uh landscape is that something well that the you- for-profit model is kind of in trouble now anyway mm. um you know there was a time when you know i there's always in my estimation and i've also heard this from people who've been in the profession a very long time that there's kind of a distinction between the profit incentive and the public service uh, aspect of it exactly i mean you got to make some money because if you don't you're not going to stay in business very long exactly and the way newspapers used to do it is that they would sell ads um mm-hmm. but now the internet takes care of that so they have to they have had to come up with a new model for um paying their staff well and, and also speaking of the internet i i know that a lot of of outlets like facebook people can post you know, an article from a news outlet, but they're not paying for it, even though the content is being monetized yeah. in some way. This is all, it, it's, 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 it's all strange for, to me to a certain extent. I'm still trying to understand it all, you know, mm-hmm. the business models, because I've never worked on that aspect of it. Right, right, right. You know, I've always been on the editorial part of it. Right, exactly. Um, but, you know, you have to make up, you have, you have to pay your staff. Somewhere totally. or another. So totally. one of the things that I've noticed, for instance, if um, if let's say somebody posts something from the New York Times or the L.A. Times or Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. and you attempt to look at it, and they're saying, no, if you're not paying for this, you can't look at it. I'm mm-hmm. all for that. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. you can't give this stuff away. Right. We, it, it, that was a mistake that was made at the beginning. Right. That they're starting to correct. Right, right. You I know, and that. I know it's annoying. You want uh-huh. to read this article. Right. But, you know, if you're not going to pay for it, you don't get to read it. It's that simple, right? Uh, because people have to be paid for what they're doing. You got to pay your journalists. You got to pay well, your staff. It's interesting. Ever since the digital distribution happened with music, with the um, creation of Napster, mm. 
uh, all of a sudden streaming. People, yeah, and, and now people think that they are owed to get content, owed music or journalism You're or whatever. Nothing. It is. You are not owed free. Uh, when somebody, you know, works hard to produce something, mm-hmm. that costs money and time. Yes, and absolutely. you are not owed that. Mm-hmm. If you want it, you need to pay for it. Right. You know what's going on right now in Hollywood? Uh-huh. Pay your writers. Pay your actors uh-huh. a livable wage. Yeah. Or you don't get a product. And I'm all for that. And, you know, it's one thing if a business is barely getting by, but the studios, you know, the big ones in and Hollywood. They get over like fat rats in a cheese factory. That's what I'm talking about. I mean, it's like, come on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like and, and their writers and a lot of their actors are barely making a livable wage. There's nothing. That, to me, is one of the, just the whole system that we're in right now. Why do we have a 1%? Okay. We got people like Jeff Bezos and and uh, oh, yeah. Elon Musk, uh-huh. okay, um, <clears throat> making all this money hand over fist, and mm-hmm. so many people are struggling right now. Mm-hmm. There's no way that 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 that's the way it's supposed to be. You, you know, you can't. It was a time when you know a working class guy could buy a three bedroom house, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and a car. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do that now. Mm-hmm. Unless both he and his wife, or what second half, or she and her better half, are working like dogs. That, well, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, if you, you know, just again, you can't buy a house in Los Angeles now because it's so damn expensive. So I, you got people commuting, you know, a hundred miles to work. New York is so expensive that you can't live in Manhattan anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, there must be. What, at least a dozen neighborhoods in Chicago that are gentrifying rapidly? I teach a class on that. I send yeah. students out to these neighborhoods that are gentrifying, and they learn all kinds of stuff. They learn about, you know, how the Cook County Assessor's Office can tack thousands of dollars onto your property tax from one bill to the next. Mm-hmm. And if you don't come up with that money to pay it, you got to sell. you got to move. Oh, they learn totally. about the labyrinth of trying to get your kid properly educated. That if you don't have the money uh, uh, to send your kid to private school uh, or the contacts to send your kid to a, um, or, or, you know, or if your kid's not bright enough to uh, test well into a magnet school or a charter school, you know, then you have no choice but to send them to the neighborhood school, which might be lousy. Uh, What's the way to move from one economic circumstance higher up? Education. And it's not even accessible. That's what I'm talking about. And so, like, if you look at a documentary that was done by Robert Reich, the former Labor Secretary under Clinton, um, you know, Inequality for All, it shows that, you know, from the late 70s, early 80s, when Reagan took over in the 80s, I mean, ever since Reagan, I mean, the, the gap between the, the haves and the have-nots has been it's growing steadily. But, you know, it's, in America, and it's baby. not like, uh, you know, it's not like Clinton didn't try to reverse that. I mean, he... He repealed the Glass-Steagall Act, and you know it put the 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 accountability of banks on you know or lack thereof on steroids. It yeah. was horrible. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is, you know, it's traditionally at least and Obama as far as I'm, restored the economy, but you know, as far as those bankers, they got away with it. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. it's like the 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 middle class has been gutted, and. You know the 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 cozying up of the Democratic Party to corporate America is part of the issue. Yeah. So then you see this Republican Democratic machine, and people sometimes falsely equate the two. But yet, if you take a look, you know, a, a wider lens to it, you're like, well, wait, they're kind of part of this system that doesn't allow a lot of real reform in. And you know, the level of, you know, like antitrust laws are not being no. Um, you Utilized and not being um, executed and 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 um, pl- 
policed at all. I mean, like you see Jeff Bezos. I mean, Amazon is just like a basic retail monopoly now. Yeah. So where are we at this point? Okay, I'm getting ready to retire from Adele, right? Uh-huh. From Northwestern. Uh-huh. You think there's a pension? No, there's no pension. Amazing. Okay, no pension. After 27 years, or 28 years by the time I leave, there is no pension. It's, it's incredible. It's not like, you know, okay, well, you'll have a pension that will be based on your years of service, you know, like, for instance, I don't know, uh, 12 years, 50% of your salary, mm-hmm. you know, 20 years, you know, mm-hmm. 60% of your salary, right, 25 right. years. Salary. No, nothing like that. Uh-huh. You know, you have a 401. Uh-huh. And if you haven't put enough money into it, sorry. But who in the hell can save enough money for that? Okay, I read recently that you're supposed to, if you want a comfortable retirement, uh-huh. okay, this is today not even in the future right. we're not even talking about your kids uh-huh. all right you need to put away somewhere between three to five hundred thousand dollars if you want a comfortable retirement mm-hmm. well who can do that with as much as houses as housing costs today mm-hmm. with as much as college tuitions cost today mm-hmm. with suit and loan debt mm-hmm. okay who's going to be able to save that amount of money so the fact of the matter is that the majority of people have not saved enough to retirement i'm in that Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, once I leave, you know what? I'm going to be finding another job because <laughs> exactly. I got to work. Exactly. All right. I got to make an income right. because there's not going to. Ironically enough, I taught for 10 years at a, at a um, uh, Prairie State College mm-hmm. part time. That was uh, uh, under the state system. Mm-hmm. They have a pension. Mm-hmm. But because I was part-time, it's not that much of a pension. But the place where I've spent most of my time teaching, no pension. It, and you know why one of the reasons why there are no longer pensions? Hmm. Because Americans are living longer. And these companies, and let's face it, universities are now companies, uh-huh. do not want to pay somebody's pension for 10, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. So they got rid of them. Right. So almost no place has pensions these days, which mm-hmm. means that when you get old and you've worked all your life and you want to say, now nah, I'd like to kick back, you can't do it. Right. That's it's where just, we are. And that's a real, I mean, it's, it's disgusting. Just, it's disgraceful. Yes, totally. disgraceful. Yeah. Where we've got other people like Jeff Bezos. How much money does he have now? And what how it? much does he need? How much does he need? That's the thing. It's it's almost like, you know, the greed is so absurd, but yet, you know, most... Well, didn't Michael Douglas say it in Wall Street? Greed is good. Uh, I mean, at okay. some point, people kind of lose sight of, you know, what's important, it seems like, with all of this greed Should I have power. been greedy? You know? Mm-hmm. You have to question yourself sometimes when after you've done something that you think was good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to tell you, when I was first, you know, years ago, <laughs> it's like another time now, mm. when I found out that, you know, I was going to teach at Northwestern, I was elated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to teach at the best journalism school in the country, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was on cloud nine for weeks before I taught my first mm-hmm. class. And I compare that to the way I feel now, mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. having been there all these years. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, eh. You know, I mean, I know I did the job well. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But as for what it did for me, it's like, eh, you know, I mean, just eh. Right. It's not like I feel this tremendous sense of accomplishment. Mm. And I should. You definitely should. And that is, should be rewarded. But that's, that's to an extent because of the system that we live under now, where you can do something and do it well, and it just... It, it just doesn't have the kind of, how can I put this? You don't get the kind of approbation for that that you think you deserve. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, my satisfaction is intrinsic. Yes. And the satisfaction is, as I've said, why did I stay there so long? The students. Yeah, absolutely. And seeing what they're doing and feeling their gratitude. And I do feel it. They make sure I feel it. And I think the reason for that is because it's so rare. I mean, the student I just had recently had dinner, uh, mm-hmm. lunch with, told me, she said, you know, I've had, you know, professors both in grad and undergrad who had no effect on me at all. <clears throat> you did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're uh, exceptional in the classroom. And, you know, even before, even be- I think this was either prior to or just as you started working at um, Northwestern, one of the projects that I, you and I have a mutual friend, Raleigh Hudson. Yeah. Who you worked on the Promised Land. Was that before Northwestern or just that toward was the before beginning? Northwestern. Oh, it yeah. was. Yeah. And I mean, I know you're, you're just a committed journalist and storyteller. <laughs> Um, and that was something that you were really proud of. Oh, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that sure. project? Um, that was with the BBC? Yeah, BBC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a five-part series uh-huh. um, that examined the northward migration of African Americans mm. and the political and social ramifications of that, specifically from Mississippi to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because the staple singers were part of that. Yes, they were. They talked, Mavis talked about exactly. that. When One I of the things there. I found out uh, of the many, many things, I mean, I found out a lot about my own people's history by I working bet. on that I project. Uh-huh. And one of the things that I found out is that where African Americans settled um, outside the South uh-huh. depended on the train lines. Uh- so as a result of that, African Americans in Chicago have a direct link, not all of them, but quite a few of them, mm. to Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee. Yep, yep. Um, African-Americans in, well, that's African-Americans in Chicago, Detroit, Mm -hmm. you know, St. Louis, in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. African-Americans on the East Coast, New York City, Boston, um, Philadelphia, Mm. they have a direct link to South and North Carolina, Mm. uh, Florida, Georgia. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, African-Americans who settled in Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, Mm. um, San Diego, um, um, Denver. Okay. have a direct link to um, Oklahoma, Texas, Louisiana. And that's based on train lines. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. My family's a little bit of an exception. My, my, uh, my mother and father were, were born and raised in this area. My mother was from Chicago. Mm-hmm. My father was from Evanston. Mm-hmm. But their parents were actually from Georgia. Uh-huh. Um, and the reason that my I know this for a fact that my mother's family settled in Chicago is because they wanted to get the hell out of Georgia, uh-huh. and Chicago was as far as they could afford to get, uh-huh. as far away as they could afford to get. So that's why they came here in 03, in 1903. Oh, gotcha. Um, <laughs> gotcha. Not 2002. For me, that was like... Okay. 1903. Gotcha. Um, okay. You know, my father's family ended up in Evanston about 1912. And there's um, a, like a street... With yes, your Garnett last name, Place, which is named after my great uncle, who was killed in World War One, the ah, Battle of the Missouri. Okay, when he was twenty-five. Um, Incredible, Thomas Garnett. But that's you know it was it was revelatory for me as well. I bet. Um, so the project was a five-part series. Mm-hmm. Um, the first uh, episode examined why African Americans wanted to leave the South because mm-hmm. it was a horrible place to live. And you were a researcher? Was yes, a, researcher. Okay. Okay, uh-huh. which means that my job was to, well, it was a variety of things, but the the biggest part of the job was to find the kind of people that they needed to interview for the project. You know, they oh, would, I see. the producers would tell uh, Raleigh and I mm-hmm. what they were looking for. Right. 
they would give us a, um, a personality profile, and mm. we'd go out and find these people. Mm. I interviewed, for instance, like about 25 people. They took three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second part of the project examined how African Americans came, you know, left the South by mm. train, by bus. Some of them actually walked, mm-hmm. okay, out of the South. Um, That's incredible. Yeah. The third was um, the um, w- what it was to settle in a new place. Um, the fifth was the fourth. Excuse me. Was about the political uh, aspects after we'd been here for a while. Mm-hmm. And the last uh, part of the series. Now this was up to 1995. Was um, how we were faring. Um, mm. So, for instance, um, the three people that I brought to the project: um, Vernon Jarrett, who was a a significant African-American journalist here in Chicago. He's deceased now. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I remember him. Uh, by the way, Valerie Jarrett, mm-hmm. um, who was Barack Obama's in Barack Obama's administration, uh-huh. was his daughter-in-law. Oh, okay. Um, got it, got it. Uh-huh. So the Jarrett's a pretty significant family in this, a uh, pretty prominent family in this area. Uh-huh. Um, he originated in Tennessee. Okay. Um, and then there were two other people, one person whose family came from mississippi done very well uh in the hair care industry the cosmetology industry um had a lush lovely home uh in the suburbs with a swimming pool okay and then there was the opposite of that um another woman whose family had uh immigrated from mississippi but they ended up in robert taylor Mm. so actually the project i did with uh jack bridges was not the first time i had been at robert taylor Mm -hmm. um so that was the what the project was about it was very well done mm-hmm. um, by the BBC. It mm-hmm. was aired on BBC and the Discovery Channel and also PBS, mm. I think. Oh, okay. Um, in the United States. And it was nominated for an Emmy. And you thought the 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 producers and directors from the BBC were good. They were, you know, they wanted to tell this story authentically. Yes, they were. They a little naive at times, but I understood that. Sure, of They're course. not from the United States. Uh-huh. They're from, you know, England. But they'd put, they were dedicated to this project. And why, it's interesting and how, like, you know, we have the BBC from, you know, the British broadcasting company that is documenting this part of the American experience. Well, why who is made it 12 a, Years a Slave? Steve McQueen, who's a British producer and director. Uh-huh. It's not an American. I know. Americans have a problem facing this. It's what I'm talking you about. You know, the best, <laughs> the best... Um, documentary I've ever seen about the civil rights movement was done was Eyes on the Prize and that was done by a black documentarian okay mm. but no I mean you know I maybe what's the guy's name who did the Civil War Ken Burns okay maybe yep, he'll yeah, tackle yeah, at some point in yeah, time yeah, but yeah. yeah you know they have a way of you know other people outside this nation mm-hmm. can look at the United States and say yeah you got a troubled past mm. And we can tell it. But it's, I mean, it's interesting that you've got this company from, you know, the UK who has a troubled past as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, they, oh, yeah. Exactly. I, I think they got into colonization and stuff back <laughs> yeah. in the day. You know, you know. It so looks something to do with the slave Yeah, trade. but it's always interesting how, you know, like I've worked with, you know, crews from the BBC on other projects, you know, and so I find it very interesting that they do this. And also I've noticed... There's a lot of really, really good British actors that can pass off as American, and we can't do extremely the well, extremely well. Yeah, like the the I and I, 
don't know if I pronounce his name, but I think it's Chiwetel Ejiofor, who was in yes. 12 Years a Slave. Yes. He was also in uh, Talk to Me. Um, yeah. At where he played Idris in Elba. Like, yeah. Know? Yeah. And they, I mean, he's, I thought he was American. And then you, you I thought you, Stringer Bell, the guy and, who played Stringer Bell in, in, um, 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 the Wire was American. I'm talking about Idris Elba. Oh, well, oh, okay. Yeah, and what about first... and what about the guy? Um, I can't think of his name. Um, uh, who played uh, Fred Hampton? In, oh, oh, in, God, oh my God! Who was um, outstanding? I can't think of the guys. Uh, Daniel, he was in. It's not Daniel Kaluuya. Is yes, it? yes, is Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah, Kaluuya. Yeah. I think. Kaluuya. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Outstanding is Fred Hampton, God, I love and that movie. and they did. Oh my God, I love that. Movie. A very very good job with was it. Was the director? No, the director is Black American. Oh, um, okay. The person who, who did that. Well, um, you know, what was interesting about. I mean, we did. Uh, you know, you know, I, I remember that era. Well, I mean, yeah. we did. We I bet you did because we did. We interviewed his attorney, Fred Hampton's attorney, on this program. It's episode nine. Uh, Fred Hampton's attorney. Um, Flint Taylor, and we talked about the film versus reality, and um, I think um, Lakeith Stanfield, who played the guy yes. who, portray- uh, who um, he portrayed the the actual person who betrayed Fred Hampton, um, unfortunately, the actual uh, person, the actually- actual person versus Lakeith Stanfield's portrayal to the attorney that we interviewed, Flint Taylor, he said. Lakeith did an exceptional job, but so did Daniel Kaluuya. He said, but it's still, even though he he gave an incredible performance versus the real man, Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton was still on this level that was extraordinary. He was an extraordinary leader. Fred Hampton was a hurricane, yeah, of influence and an intellect to be courage. Twenty one years old. I know. And and the and way his, and, and I want to make this very clear: his death was murder. Oh, totally. Okay. Oh, yeah. They we, counted ninety-nine shots, and exactly from the police, and exactly yeah. one that came from inside that apartment. Right. And that was more than likely from Mark Clark as he was hitting the floor. Yeah. Oh, so you're you're fa- you're familiar with this story? Even I remember before. December fourth, nineteen sixty-nine. I'll never forget okay. it. I was Got in it. high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. had a tremendous effect on me. Uh-huh. And so many other kids, because Fred right. Hampton was, this is a man that was actually pulling together a coalition of African Americans, Hispanics, and poor whites. Poor whites who sometimes some of them flew the uh, Confederate flag. Yes, exactly. They he had that kind of influence. He what was he amazing. Was say to these people, "We're all in the same boat." Totally, and, and he, we're not your enemy. They are. Uh, Exactly. The people, the power structure that we were just talking about, totally. expressing you. That's exactly. why they killed him. He was dangerous as hell. Yeah. Yeah, well, what, you know, most people don't know that we explored in that episode, which was, you know, COINTELPRO, and there was a government program to deal with this. Mm-hmm. You know, the Black Messiah problem. Yeah. There was a government program to destroy the Black Panthers, which they did. Oh, totally. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I remember that era. My parents... Wouldn't let me become a Black Panther. <laughs> Remember, I was only sixteen. Oh, you time. wanted to be a Black Panther? I, so I, I don't know if I really wanted to, but I really admired them, mm-hmm. and so did my parents, frankly. But they just didn't want me to get killed, right? Okay, <laughs> yeah. and and they could kind of see what was going to come down. In right. fact, when Fred Hampton was murdered, I remember my 
my mother crying uh-huh. you know, because this was someone who was younger than her oldest son. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember right. my father saying, that's what we didn't want to happen to you. Exactly. Because I used to go to protests and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And would I have become a Black Panther? I don't know. I mean, I was right. kind of a sheltered kid. And, right, right, right. You know, I was just coming out of my goofy stage, you know, where I was a goofy, flat-footed, you know, very naive kid, you know, mm-hmm. raised in a middle-class neighborhood, you know, uh-huh. didn't, wasn't really familiar with a lot of the stuff that African-Americans who were in poor communities were dealing mm-hmm. with, you know. I, I, I credit my mother and father for that. You know, they, 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 they sheltered us. When you are... From this is one thing I have to say that when you're from a loving family, mm-hmm. um, there is a an effort among African American families to shield their kids sometimes mm-hmm. from the harsh realities as much as possible. They mm-hmm. can't do it entirely. There's no way they can. Yeah, do it. totally. But they try to at least lessen it to a very great extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what my parents were doing. Mm, mm-hmm. So, no, they did not want me to become a Black Panther because they didn't want me to die. Right. But it wasn't that they didn't see very clearly, you know, what was going on. My mm-hmm. dad, in particular, never, ever uh, was one of these African Americans who tried to. He was not a Tim Scott by any stretch of the mm-hmm. imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, he just wasn't that kind of person. And neither was my mother. Um, they knew the reality of it. I remember. When I was six years old, and we moved out to the neighborhood we were going to, I was going into a school that I like to say was temporarily integrated, mm-hmm. because it took several years for all the whites to leave. Right. And when I went into the school, um, most of the, let's say first grade, most of my classmates were little white kids. Mm-hmm. And my parents told me the story later. One day, um, I was sitting at the breakfast table or the dinner table mm-hmm. as as a six-year-old mm-hmm. and i just casually said i heard that they were in words at the school okay oh, oh my gosh and that's when my mother and father decided we have to have the talk right now, do you know what the talk is mm. the talk is when you sit your kid down and explain that there's race prejudice and they have to deal with it right okay I didn't mean to use the word. I think the last time sure. I tried, I just forgot. Sure, sure. So they had to deal with it. Right. Um, well, what had happened is that I'd heard the word on the playground. Mm-hmm. And a little white kid had told me. Mm. He didn't know what the word meant. He was telling me as a warning uh-huh. that these bad people are out here <laughs> oh my without goodness. actually knowing who those bad people were, <laughs> oh that goodness. I was supposed to be one of them. Okay. Kids are so exactly. They're so innocent. Exactly. And I didn't know what that word was because remember what I said. My dad said that he considered that to be the worst word in the English language. Mm. That was always the way he described it. Mm. So that word was never used in our house. I didn't know what it was. Mm. Mm. So they had. How to old were you at this? Six. Time? Wow. So they had to sit down and explain to me what uh. that word was about. Mm. And I started crying. Mm. Wow. And they said, "You have to understand." People who use that word are ignorant. Mm-hmm. They're stupid. Um, it doesn't really apply to you. It's what they think it applies to you, and mm-hmm. it's a bad word. But mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know. People who use it are the bad people, not you. Right. Okay. And that had to be explained to me. Right. So that's when you kind of find out at a very young age, uh-huh. okay, what being black in America is. Mm. That's how I found out. Mm. You know, when that word was used, and they had to explain to me what that word meant. Mm. Um, 
so, I mean, you know, we get this education very early on. And if you've got conscientious, this is why I have a problem with the word, you know, um, as far as I said it. But I hate that word. Right. You know, and it's one of the reasons I have a problem with hip hop and rap because it's just, I mean, some people, you know, black folks use that word like punctuation. Exactly. Okay. And it has, it, 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 it's like acid in my ears. Yeah, I bet. Okay. I don't care who uses it. It's acid in my ears mm-hmm. to hear it. Yeah. Because I grew up in a household where that word was considered to be thoroughly and utterly disgusting. Okay. Yeah, it's got an electricity to it. And boy, so, I mean, and I, I don't think there's a way of desensitizing it because that's it's been explained. Well, the reason why they use it so much is they're desensitizing it. Uh-uh. No, it's got too much history behind it. Yeah, no, I hear When you. I was watching 12 Years of Slavery, you might have noticed this too. The slaves referred to themselves with that word mm. because they were taught to. Right. And the reason that they were taught to is because that word is dehumanizing. Exactly. And they were taught to dehumanize themselves. Now, here we are, you know, centuries, a century and a half later. I think the greatest destruction that has been done to African Americans mm. through racism is it has convinced so many African Americans to devalue their own lives. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. That's one reason why there's so much carnage in, in these communities. These kids don't respect their own lives. Why do they respect yours? The culture is... The culture has, you know... been. I mean, it's been orchestrated to a large degree yes. more than we realize from behind the scenes. Yes. I mean... Okay. You're you nothing. Know, we, you know, we, you're nothing. we know of the CIA orchestrating exactly. you drug use. You are nothing. In, you are trash. And, you know, referring to yourself by this word is emphasizing that and you know i mean it's interesting but an inward and it's tough to you know to wrap your head around it when you know one of the most i think one of the most brilliant comedians with dave Chappelle, who's lauded in almost every circle you go into uses the word regularly yeah and so it's 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 there's there's a lot of mixed emotions wrapped up in that well, no richard, matter what color you are but particularly if you're black richard like, pryor was the one who actually started using it uh-huh okay and uh-huh. later regretted it oh really? you can actually yes he did interesting yeah he later regretted it he said I'm, I'm i'm sorry i did that and i think richard Pryor is one of dave Chappelle's idols exactly it's interesting exactly it's interesting you know, he had a he had an album called that n-word is crazy okay? wow yeah uh which was extremely popular it mm. sold millions mm-hmm. uh, but yeah he later said that he regretted it and you know, and, you know and it's interesting because you have dave Chappelle. Who who did some of the most brilliant comedy sketches I've ever seen, mm-hmm. like the black white supremacist or mm-hmm. the race auction, the black auctioning off Eminem, yeah. and I'm like, you gotta, I mean, the things, the 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 subject matters that he has gone right after that are just the most sensitive in our society. That I mean, he's gone right and like danced around them and turned them on its head and like showcased them for people to see in the, some of the most brilliant ways. Yet he's using this, so that's a conversation that'll be ongoing. But I get, I wanted to wrap up with saying to you thank you so much for this this has been incredible but also it must be very freeing to you you know wrapping up your career as a teacher at northwestern now publishing your opinion pieces Mm -hmm. on what is the 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 website again uh max news today max news today.com that must be very freeing 
for you to really express yourself because I don't think you've ever really done this during your tenure no, at Northwestern. No, I've never been an editorialist. Ever. Okay. Throughout my entire career. My okay. whole thing was reporting what other people thought. Mm-hmm. You know, who gave a damn what I thought? I was the, the conduit. Right. Okay. And oh, by the way, I want to um, uh, mention this. The, please. The person who established that, uh, Max News Today, the person who established that website uh-huh. is a former student. Oh, yeah, Nathan Ooh. Max. Oh, great. Yeah, he's a former student. He got in touch with me um, about three years ago mm-hmm. during the height of the pandemic. Okay. And said he was establishing this and said, you know, and offered me this chance to write editorials. And huh? I was like, the first thing I said was, man, I don't write editorials. <laughs> you know, that's not my thing. I don't do that. And then? And he said, I think you'll be good. I got to give him credit. He saw something I didn't say. I uh, see. He said, I think Which is be what good a great teacher does. You see something in exactly. way, so it's kind of reverted. It, I learned it, a lot it, from my former students. The same thing. Talk. Same thing. Yeah. You, know, you, you learn yeah. from them. Yes, um, and he said, no, I'm, I think you'll be great at this. Uh-huh. So I took a shot at it. Um, yeah. And I haven't written that many. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've won a couple of awards for it. Right, right. Um, but you can't, the, they aren't, they're from uh, non-daily reporting. Mm. Because, I mean, I write them when I move to write them. I mean, I, right, I don't right. think I could write, one of the reasons I didn't want to write editorials that I didn't want to be under the pressure of writing them every day or every week because mm-hmm. I don't always have an opinion. And you know, I, I just had to say something that you really just brought to mind that I didn't want to, you know, end this with without bringing up is that, you know, when it comes to, you know, some people feel a need to get different viewpoints. And I'm like, well, if it's something worthwhile, like I challenge myself to listen to perspectives that right. I may not agree with. If I'm listening to something that could potentially provide some um, beneficial perspective to me. So, for instance, I'm not really going to turn on Fox News and <laughs> listen to a lot of what's going on. Like, you know, when Bill O'Reilly was on, I'm I, like, I it's like, it. I'm not, that's not helping me understand. But if I listen to, say, you know, I learn about, say, Bitcoin, or I learn about some other perspective, say, that this woman, um, who used the uh, Honestly podcast, Barry Weiss, who used to work for the New York Times. And some of you know the people on her, on her show come from a more conservative standpoint. Not totally, but like I'll, I, I've learned from their perspectives, and, I'm not, and I challenge myself not to get triggered like I used to. And like, okay, now I understand that. Let me consider it for real. I want more of that. I think we need more of that. I think podcasting is a route to that so that people are actually hearing each other it's because we what I realize is there's a lot more common ground than meets the eye and I hope with this um, with this particular internet site that allows for opinion pieces, I hope he's trying to get opinion pieces across the spectrum of ideas. You know what I'm saying? As opposed to, this is progressive, this is conservative, this is... And, are you know, talking about Max News today? Yeah, or and, and, and any other outlet. Well, like he, I, I think opinions are fine, but I just think that, that you know, it gives people different you know, perspectives so that it's actually helpful for people to understand the variety of perspectives. Out there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think he actually is doing that. Oh, that's um, great. I'm, I, I, you know, they, they pretty much lean left, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think he is trying to do that. I mean, I... It's harder. It's easier said than done. It is easier said Because than it's done. so hard to, like, look at yourself and say, 
and challenge yourself and say, yeah. am I being, am I not allowing this to be said? You know, like you, you can say any, like these trigger words and people will get triggered. Like I used to love, you Woke, know, as, for instance, is now a trigger word. Okay. Exactly. That's a perfect that, that's, example. That's, it's that, like, you know, it's what is that? Word. It started out as like, just kind of being aware and co- or oh, politically correct mind? or PC, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you're just kind of being considerate about other people that you may not know about. Oh, you're PC or you're trying to be so perfect and trying to be so liberal and now woke. And, you know, it started out as... Actually, it started out as something that seemed like a good idea. Like you're kind of waking up to things that you didn't know about before. Yeah, that seems like a nice uh, idea. Or but someone then it told ke- me recently, you're not a college educator; you're an indoctrinator. Because now, going to college, as far as this person is concerned, is not about expanding your mind, mm-hmm. and that's what it's supposed to be about. You, they do call it higher education, and but and you know, now it's it, about being indoctrinated to think left. And you know what? And and it's like, okay, like, is there indoctrination in schools? Of course there is. No question about it. But can we find a balance? Can we bring in that viewpoint and the other viewpoint that, okay, maybe to some degree that may be true, but also that you're expanding your mind and considering other perspectives and that actually they can live together and a person can grow from that? That's all I'm saying. It's so... It's so nuanced that I, all I want is to have more nuanced conversations. That's it. And if you try to have them, you are blasted from different viewpoints and perspectives in the media, on social media, to a large degree. And if you really want to try to deal with the nuance from different perspectives, you're vilified. And these, these, these terms are vilified. They're turned upside down. And, and yes, like, you know, we could sit here all day about talking about the black lives matter movement it started out as something that like seemed like a good idea the organization transformed and did things that weren't really wonderful but but as a movement it started out as a result of yeah people need to understand that black lives matter it's really simple not more or only uh, yeah but also and then then uh, like white lives matter and then this and, and then blue lives uh, matter. and then it's like come on Really, and and it, all I'm saying is the media landscape is so destructive, to just generating, fostering understanding from different groups of people. That's really what I'm pointing to, and that's the point of this series that you know we want to do, and so that it's, and you know I'm you know I'm willing to take it on the chin. I, I understand that. And and when you make an editorial now, you've got to be willing to take it on the chin. Like these are this is how I see it. And that's coming from your perspective and that's fine. My perspective is that I'm going to talk to people from different perspectives and I'm sure I'm going to take it on the chin <laughs> from people that like may not like what other people well, have to I say have. and that, and that's okay. Yeah, I've taken it on the chin. Yeah, and but you've got to be willing what a lot of people don't realize is you've got to be willing to do that. Well, I um, think so. You know, I and that's so. what like a really good journalist who's reporting some investigatory piece has to be able to do that. I mean, re- people who really want to provide something worthwhile in the in the public arena, they've got to be willing to take it on the chin and have a thick skin. There's no two ways about it. If you're really going to put out something that could potentially be productive and constructive, people will try to like turn it upside down and, and and misconstrue it purposefully and 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 make you and vilify you yeah exactly 
and that's what's happened <laughs> to <these. laughs> so like you know like yeah i mean you can take any per like you know elon musk for example perfect example of somebody who's gotten you know is lauded in some circles and vilified in others and all that and it's like maybe it's a mixed bag for instance yeah if, is he like bad on unions and creating um a bad workplace potentially i've heard some really bad things that are very very concerning for real and that may be true on the other hand i saw him on an interview and he's like well you know people try to turn me as a conservative but you know i've done a lot of things for the environment because i actually do care about the earth and he talked about his ev things and his renewable energy efforts which are profound and significant and he's very very um incredibly productive and um intelligent in those in those arenas and he's done some wonderful things that a lot of people think is great so it's like all i'm saying is most people and most situations are mixed bags there, it's not. It's not like we need to hate and 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 our and our media is ginning people up to like we need to hate this person and everything they say is hateful and everything is bad and and it's all bad and anything that they say is horrible. That's a terrible way to move forward in our society. I mean, so like you know, I'm Jewish. You mentioned Louis Farrakhan's name. Oh my God, and I was like, you know. I, I had to say, well, you know, I went to a, a Louis Farrakhan speech at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and um, I didn't see, I didn't hear one word that was anti-Semitic. And they're like, oh, but he isn't, da 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 All my Jewish friends told me this. And I was like, okay, that's fine, okay. Well, I listened to three more full speeches that he gave on television in, um, in their entirety and not out of context. I still didn't hear anything now that doesn't mean he's not uh has uh bad sentiments toward jewish people i just haven't heard it from his mouth so and i would say to anybody who said this to me if you hear something specific that he said in context let me know well that's only fair and that's all i'm saying yeah. that's all i'm saying and then the more i learned about why he's saying things in a particular way how he's saying i'm like seems very rational and insightful. That doesn't mean I'm like this big proponent of the Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan. It's just that what I've experienced so far, I cannot disagree with. That's all I'm saying. And so, like, even what I'm saying right now could easily be taken out of context. Oh, yeah. And, you know, just putting it out what? in the public. What? Are you kidding? You know, you're Jewish. He's you... a self-hating Jew. He's exactly. this, he's that, and da 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 I mean, I remember when I brought up, you know, Noam Chomsky's name to a fellow Jewish person, the first word out of their mouth is, oh, he's a self-hating Jew. I was like, what? Yeah. Noam Chomsky, who's criticized Israeli policies? I'm like, really? Well, there Noam are people Chomsky? who are going to disagree with me about what I said about Tim Scott, for instance. They'll say that he's reasonable. Um, you know, I mean, that's my personal opinion. And if somebody like brings up points that says, okay, this is what I think, I was like, well, tell me why you think that. Yeah, I'll listen. All I'm saying is, what I've noticed is, over the, particularly over the last f 10 years, mainly in the last five to seven, is I've noticed I'm a lot less triggered by things because I noticed that that doesn't really help me understand the world at all. It doesn't help anybody. Understand and it's it. so easy. Like the, the, the thing that's really helped me is like noticing that 
uh, yeah, I'm a human being, and I have frailties like everybody else, and I can get triggered. Just notice your triggers. It may help you actually not get run by them and actually hear another Well, that's the important being. thing, to not let them control you, and it's not easy. It, and we're all yeah. subject to it, no matter how astute or woke or politically correct or whatever ridiculous term you want to use that started out as a good thing but now has been vilified or whatever. If you try to re- remember that, I think that'll be helpful. And that's what actually got me into doing this show and got me into now thinking about doing this incentive series where I really want people to actually, to, I really want to create a forum where people can actually speak in a nuanced way and actually generate um you know, authentic understanding. I know that sounds idealistic and ridiculous, but I think it's no, actually it does possible. Not sound it sounds. It does sound idealistic, but it's yeah. not ridiculous. I mean, and, and and I think it's possible if there's a form to do it in such. Yeah. So you know, like you may you 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 know, and some of my other friends may see some podcasts are are, are the titles for some of these series, some of the series, and say, "What is he doing?" But then, when you listen to it, you may have a different opinion, and that's all I'm saying. So, I think we need more of that. And you know, talking to you has hopefully enriched some other people's lives that might see this and say, who say are not familiar with journalism, who've shut themselves off to journalism, and how can they find real good sources of journalism? Um, and how how can they understand the black experience and a combination that whoops and a combination thereof that might be very helpful to people who who might see this and say wow you know I had no idea can I answer two please, questions right please there? one how do you find out the truth about the black experience talk to someone who's black first Great. of all beautiful okay I mean actually go to the source and. You know, have a reasonable conversation mm-hmm. and be honest about it and tell them, you know, I really want to know. Mm-hmm. All right. Because um, you got to create an environment for people to be honest. Exactly. With you. And you have to let yeah. people know that I'm doing this for a legitimate, honest reason. It's not just because I want to thrill. Okay. Exactly. How do you find, you know, good journalism out there? Oh, it's out there. Okay. So how do you find it? Yes. Go to a journalist you trust and ask. They'll tell you. Mm. Okay. Mm. It's there. I'll, I'll tell you right now. You know, if you want to know where to find it, okay, <laughs> it's what some people are calling fake news. But, you know, I'll tell you right now, as from the perspective of a journalist, what newspaper should you read? New York Times, Washington Post, mm-hmm. Los Angeles Times, okay? Cleveland Plain Dealer. And uh, I want to, I just want to like throw one thing in that people should know that no matter what outlet, that you listen to or read or whatever have there been you know has there been some um issues with any uh organization that's run by human beings no matter how great they've been yeah 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 have there been some journalists from the new york times that have done things that are sketchy yeah yeah but not very many no and have they broken some real vital stories that we need to know about uh, like across the board for years and years in the Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah, they have. So all I'm saying is if you want to take one little example from an organization that has an incredible history of doing great work and say, that's why they're bad. I can't I can't read them. That's not really the best way to proceed. Yeah. I just wanted to say that because like I have a tremendous amount of respect for the New York Times and the Washington Post and other media organizations that I 
um, that I've looked, I've turned to 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 generate an understanding. But you know, L.A. Times has done some great work. They have, uh, yeah, and the Atlantic, yeah. Um, but are there uh, some things that have been, you know, a black mark on their history, so to speak? For then, that's a horrible term to use. Or <laughs> that, that, let me say that again. That have been a mark, a detrimental mark on their history. <laughs> Look at how the word has been utilized. Well, you have black marks and you have black, black bald <laughs> and black, you know. <laughs> Let and, me say this also. And, but, you know, you just don't want to, like, throw the, 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 the baby out with the bathwater. And I exactly. see that, like, people are just primed to do that. Like, see, that's what they said. And it's all bad. And you're like, no. Everybody makes mistakes. Exactly. And you try very hard not to make them. Exactly. Right? So what you do is you accept that. But you look at the track record overall of what has been reported and how it has been reported. Exactly. And that's how you determine whether or not this is where you're going to get your most accurate information. So I stand behind those publications I yes. just mentioned. Yes. And also, for me, you know, that's what you do read. What do you not read? National Enquirer. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. Um, as far as, you know, media is concerned, let's say television. Where is, in my estimation, the most unbiased reporting right now? Well, it's been around for years. How about your NBC Network News broadcast at 530 mm. or CBS? That's mm. just the news. Mm-hmm. It's not MSNBC. It's not CNN. It's not mm. opinion. Mm. It's correspondence telling you what happened. Okay? Yeah. I when mean, you it not would... get news, general news? Fox News, because hey, haven't they just been sued, okay, yeah, by a major for company openly for lying? lying? Yeah. Okay? Shouldn't that tell you that's not where you're going to get your the, real news? And the fair use um, uh, law that, yeah, I mean, Reagan pulled that way back. Exactly. And now we've got people. This isn't that difficult to figure out, okay? Well, it, for you. Well, I guess not because someone who's seasoned. I mean, I'm talking about for the 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 you know the mainstream audience that's not tapped in. I mean, we're coming from different perspectives for sure than you know the well, mainstream. Part of the problem person. is the you know that audience has so many choices now. And that's exactly. Sometimes that's not a good thing. Okay? And I mean, social media has amplified how exactly. bad that is because then you can. It's one listen. reason I hold social media at arm's length. Ah, uh, totally. I do because you uh, get in that echo chain. And exactly. that bubble, and then it just like what's going on with Twitter right now. I've never tweeted anything in my life. I have 300 followers who are still waiting for me to tweet. Yeah, something. and it, you know, it's a fine line this whole debate between freedom of speech, and it's like part is like, yeah, that's a really good thing, but like, what if someone's dangerous, and how do we ride that well, line? Some it's people very- do not understand the difference between freedom of speech and hate speech. Okay. And it's a fun, I mean, that's a whole nother, yeah. that's a whole nother episode. You might be, that's a whole conversation in and of itself. You know. Yeah. You know, and it's freedom fi- of speech is I have an opinion that might not be the same as yours, and it might even make you angry. And you know, but hate the, speech is kill that person. I mean, we're, <laughs> you know, being in Skokie, I mean, the Nazis were defended by lawyers at the ACLU who were Jewish yeah. to let them speak, and like that's hate speech for yeah. sure. But yet. They believed in the freedom of speech, and the, but now you've got like you know people were not wanting uh, Trump's Twitter account to be uh, reinstated, and you know part of you know someone's thinking is like yeah because it's dangerous, but then they, on the other hand, well where do we draw the line? And that's a whole nuanced conversation, which should be had for sure, but in a in a form that's helpful 
for people to really work through it, you know, to help them come to their own conclusions in a helpful and productive way. And that's really what I'm saying. And I got to tell you, it's been a real, real honor and privilege to teach with you, to have you here, for you to express your opinions, unfiltered, (laughs) raw and uncut. And his real name, his name is pronounced Stephen Garnett. Thank you. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You did. Stephen Garnett. You but did. I do call him Steve. Yep. And he calls me Steve. Yep. And it was a real pleasure to have you. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for tuning into the show. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to subscribe to hear more compelling shows on Rhythm of Life and keep an eye out for our upcoming series of how we as a society oftentimes incentivize all the wrong behavior here in the United States. We see this in the healthcare industry, in the media, and in our educational systems to name a few of the fields we will be covering. If you have a moment, please leave a rating and review so more people can hear about us and share about Rhythm of Life on social media and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Ordauer. This has been a Rhythm and Light production.